And now, because you, Andrew Betts, ask for it. A reading, perhaps the last reading, from the book of Kippelman. Hit it, sweet Lou. What will we get for $10? Every ting you want. Everything? Every ting. Oh, don't do that, baby. Ah. <laughs> Hold on this. Oh, sock it to me. Ah. Oh. Ah, me so horny. Ah, me so horny. join in. Ah, me so horny. We love you long time. It's finally here. It's episode 300. The grand finale of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. The regular podcast edition, at least. We are, of course, how many times have I had to mention this now, Barry? Still going to be available on Patreon. So all of you that cannot dip into your wallet for that $5 payment per month to get access to Every Patreon episode, plus all the current Patreon episodes that Barry, Lou, and I will continue to produce. I digress, Barry. Welcome to episode 300, Mr. Rose. Oh, long time coming. And, uh, you know, it, it, I'll tell you what's amazing more than anything else is I went through the archives of uh, the past 299 shows. And I got to say, first off, John McAdam was the second episode. I was first. John McAdam was second. John Hitchcock was third, and then I came back on the fourth episode, and we did. I came to my senses, some would say. That's where you got me cheap, one of the two, right? And the other guys were looking for a hefty payday, and I work for Franks and Beans. But we've we've really – there's been some incredible content over the last almost six years. I think we're just a, a few months shy of maybe six years, and I had forgotten so much that we had done because – you know, it, again, we always talk about the genesis of this show, and it really was just born out of the, you know, conversations that Jeff and I had over the phone or in person, and the fact that there were a lot of commonalities to the stuff that we liked and listened to, et cetera, or even went to restaurants and ate. So, uh, we, there's just been some incredible content. So when you talk about Patreon, uh, right away, you know, easily, uh, you can get all the shows that we did, the the regular show. Obviously, those will always be out there, and those will be free. But the Patreon, which is a really a great way to support us and, and keep us going, there's some amazing content uh, there as well. And you go back to some of these early episodes, and I, in my head, I was thinking, when did we do that whole Twilight Zone episode? Because that was a whole mind fuck, if you remember that. He was – we had Mark Zakri on our show, and he's the guy who had written the Twilight Zone handbook, which I think – think is 40 years old at this point, but he does a new revised version every few years. He's also written for several television shows. He is just a wealth of knowledge. And I want to say, Jeff, was he in London or was it France? But he was like in an outdoor cafe and still he was in the kitchen somewhere. <laughs> like, no, I'm serious. Like he was on because you could hear people walking past. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he was in Europe. And, and I remember saying I remember in the conversation. That's how committed we are to you, the listener. Yeah, we go overseas 
for we our guests. Overseas, but how crazy. And I remember saying to Mark, like, Mark, we can do this when you get back. We don't need to rush it. And he goes, no, I'm happy to do it now. So there is just some great stuff on there. And one of the things, Jeff, as we – we're in this last regular episode, which I got to tell you, I have a lot of mixed emotions about. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't think I've ever sat and fully listened to an episode. And I know that you do, and a lot of it is literally quality control and, you know, checking out content, making sure things are, are working properly. For me, I hate hearing myself, so I never did it. But I, I think I'm actually going to do what Stephen Raphael, Judd Philpot, uh, I think Adam Delmau, did this at one point. Several people have done it. Bobby Van Cavalar, they've gone back to episode one and just fucking cranked it out and just gone. I think maybe this summer in my free time, instead of listening to, uh, you know, the same songs that I've heard 80,000 times, I, I may just start at episode one and just go through the entire catalog. Well, <clears throat> you know, if you, uh, you go back to the early days, uh, you wonder when did we actually begin to hit our stride? I think it was approximately episode 298. I think that's when we really <laughs> yeah. started hitting our groove, Barry. Truth. So, uh, yeah. So I, I came up, uh, by the way, uh, let me mention this is a special supersized uh, edition, clear with Brian last, I will say. Uh, among uh, the things that we're going to be doing today, we have several guests. Uh, we have the, uh, the end of our Dottie Curtis. Uh, interview, which was very well received. I, I had some people call me, uh, and tell me how much they enjoyed the interview and said it was one of the better ones we've ever done. Yep. We're also joined by, uh, a, a friend of our, sh- a friend of the show, Kevin Kelly, uh, chiming in. And, uh, you know, we wanted to, to talk to him, uh, one last time here on the episodic portion. Our old friend, John Hitchcock, uh, who we haven't talked to since episode three, uh, joined us and, uh, told some funny stories about the, uh, the old days. So, Barry, before we get into the meat of the episode, I have a couple questions that I wanted to ask you. Sure. We've always discussed this, Barry. Who was the worst guest we've ever had here on Breaking Gay Fave with Dr. Barry? So uh, I'm going to not mention the first two names because, uh, I mean, I don't want to put the boots to anybody. Uh, but let's just say we, we had one guest who was famous for... That's me rattling the ice in my cup. Remember that yep. guy, Barry? Oh, I, and I love yes. that guy. Yes. yes. Uh, and uh, it was Brian that was doing the producing back then. And he said, who's the guy rattling the ice? Which one of you guys? And all all three of us said, oh, I'm not rattling the ice. And we knew it wasn't me or you. It was the other guy. So that interview never made it. But here's the best part of that, Jeff. This guy is a professional broadcaster, radio and television, I'm going to say, for the last 40 years. Yeah, so it was, and, it, was just, it. it was really funny. The second one I'm going to mention is a guy, <clears throat> Barry, let's see if you can uh, remember without divulging the name. Just tell sure. me, Oh, I know who you're talking about. It was a guy that we'd say, Oh, uh, what do you remember about this particular wrestler? And we'd have about five seconds of yeah, dead air. Ding, ding. And, and then yes. he'd go, <laughs> uh, and then he'd repeat the guy's name and you have another five seconds of dead air. By the way, nothing is more professional sounding on whether it's a radio broadcast, a podcast or whatever than dead air. Cause, uh, I have to be honest with you. There is a podcast having nothing to do with the, the, the Arcadian network. It's a football podcast and it is two guys talking football and one guy has this horrible habit of leaving five to 10 seconds of dead fucking air. And it's absolutely, you want to go, 
dude, what are you fucking doing? Quit with the dead air. Anyway, so this guy would leave us with dead air and he did an interview with us. Nice enough guy, but we couldn't use the interview because of all the dead fucking air. Thanks a lot. No, I think the guy that I want to say is the worst guest is another guy that we never actually had because it's a guy that we called who said, oh, uh, give me five minutes, then call back and we'll start. We said, okay. And we call back in five minutes and the phone rang and rang and rang. He never picked it up and we waited and we call back another five minutes later and it rang and it rang and it rang and we never fucking heard from the guy again. Well, he you're totally, wonderful, Jeff. You're wonderful. That was totally, Pat, Pat fucking Tanaka. It was so. Pat fucking Tanaka. Yeah. He totally you may be too big to not call anybody out, but oh, fuck, I was getting I'm, there. I was oh, getting okay. There. I thought you were going to sit on that. Pat Tanaka. And it, that's legitimately exactly what happened. What Jeff just said, we called him and he said, give me five minutes. And then he completely ghosted us. And what sucked about it was we had gotten him as a guest through, uh, through Nick Massey. So he was going to be doing essentially a plug for Nick and an upcoming signing. That was a nightmare. The other guy, and I won't mention his name just because he, he didn't do us wrong, but boy, was he a horrible interview. But Jeff's right. We, and we probably spent 45 minutes to an hour with him. And we said afterwards, I don't think we can even use this interview. And I think Lou was with us at that stage, if I'm recalling correctly, Jeff. Yeah. Good times. And you know, I, I will say, Nick Massey, so gracious, uh, hooking us up with, uh, with guests over the years. And we really are appreciative. Uh, that one, uh, for, uh, the reasons we stated did not work out. Uh, but, uh, now, do uh I don't remember the other guy now. So, oh is- yeah. There, now you, what you you just reminded me, I know you're going to say, Mr. Uh, I'm getting ready to have a dental surgery or something like that. That guy. So no way. Then there's two. Okay. <laughs> there was Mr. Dental Surgery. Did we ever play that? We never used that. Did I, don't, we? I don't know if we did or not. I got to be honest. Hey, with sweet you. Lou, did we ever use that interview? Oh, uh, which interview? Uh, with Mr. the guy, the Mr. guy. Who- I, I have a dental appointment. That's why my words are slurring. <laughs> oh no, that got buried deep, deep All right. in the, in the archives. Yeah. So we had that one and then we had a guy who, uh, was wild at one point in his career. He was also a doctor and a goon, and he completely ghosted us. And then I guess we reached out to find out why, and he was pretty honest. said, I got really fucking drunk. So that's, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So uh, the next question I have before we get to the meat of the show, over the course of now 300 episodes, wow, Lord Barons, tell me, I'm going to give you a list of names you tell me which one of these names would be on the Mount Rushmore of name drops here on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. I give you one last time. You pick the four that we've mentioned the most. Ready? How many names are you giving me, by the uh, way? I'm going to throw a few out there at you, okay? Right. I'm going to write this down. Start going. John Lee from Wales. Dave Flaherty. Stephen Yank One Out Javorski. Chris friggin' Spiker, Eric Um Cholminski, <laughs> Jamie Ward, or Kevin Orcutt. Give me the top four that we've mentioned here on this show. Oh, shit. Kevin Orcutt, uh, for sure. John Lee, for sure. Chris Spiker, for sure. And Steven Javorski for sure. That's where I would go. Okay. With that honorable mention to both Flaherty and Jamie Ward as well, though. You four gentlemen that are on the Mount Rushmore of a breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry 
Name drops, you all owe us a residual check. You can make those out to Barry Rose, Jeff Baldrin, and Lou Kippelman. Thank you very kindly, gentlemen. On that note, oh, yeah, no, Chris Zaha, uh, thank you, Lou. We haven't mentioned him recently, so you just missed the cutoff line, Chris. Sorry. Uh, go play with your Batman or something. So on that note, hey, sweet Lou, we've interviewed some friends of the show, and we've got a little extended Florida Man or Not segment. Take it away, Lou. Barry, you know, here on this last episode of Breaking Fabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the regular episodic portion of our podcast, at least, we figured we'd reach back in time, have some visitors from our past. And so we decided that what better uh, guest to have than the voice of AEW Collision, Barry. It's our what? old friend Kevin Kelly. How you doing, Kev? Guys, uh, what, you couldn't get anybody good? <laughs> Well, you know, I gotta be honest. You were at number twenty-seven on the list. You know, I'm just, I'm just gonna. All right. Say, well, listen. Sometimes there's a really long standby list, and there just happens to be a lot of seats available on the plane, and you take it. You say, well, okay, you I know, wasn't number one, but know, at least I, I'm on the flight. When, when I reached out, to, uh, uh, you know, Tony Khan, I said, uh, you know, uh, how about uh, Danielson, uh, Okada, Moxley, Omega, and he said, uh, how about Kevin Kelly? And I said, okay, we'll. There you go. Compromise is the spice of yes, life. Exactly. Congrats, guys. It's been a boy, a hell of a run you guys have been on. And uh it's amazing that we're you know, we're this far into it when you start to, you know, go like episodic numbers, it's like dang, how did we how did we do all this? Three hundred episodes, Barry. Three hundred episodes. Three hundred episodes, and I don't. You know, I always tell this story, and I'm not sure Kevin even knows this, but uh, Kev, we have never missed a week. So we have every single week for three hundred weeks provided new content. But I don't know if you knew that my my brother was in the hospital four years ago, three years ago, and uh, was battling cancer. And his dedication, he was still recording this podcast in the hospital, Kevin. That right wow. there. Exactly. That right there is something I wish I could be committed to something the way that Jeff was committed to this show. Well, I, yeah, I remember, you know, all of that. It was following and listening along and, you know, hearing and I, what I was listening for, Jeff. I just wanted to hear like the strength in the voice. You know, that's what I that's what I was paying attention to, because it's like, no, he sounds OK. He sounds, you know, a little weak, a little this. But but, you know, by and large, like. We're going to be okay, and we're going to get through this. That that was very encouraging and inspirational. Well, like we uh, thank you for those kind words. Uh, like we like to say, we made it through cancer. We made it through a divorce on Barry's side. We made it uh, to two kids going to college. Uh, my daughter got married. Uh, you know, all kind of uh, Jeff. You ebbs moved. And flows. You moved to uh, a different I moved. state. You retired. You moved. Yeah. As as John Lennon once said, "Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans," my friend. Yeah. So, but we did want to uh, have you on uh, just to uh, wish us well, if that's what you'd like to do. And we want to say congrats also congrats on being a uh, part of AEW Collision. How exciting is that for you, my friend? Thank you very much. Yes, it's um, it's very exciting. And, th- you know, this is born out of this is kind of like a an extension of the forbidden door. This is the uh, forbidden uh, foyer, I guess we could say. But the, you know, um having the relationship between uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling and AEW uh, and Tony and I speaking personally about this, you know, it's, is this something you would be interested in? 
uh, yes, what's your, what's your new Japan commitments? Here they are. Okay. We can make that work. That's no problem. So it'll be, you know, because the two companies get along so well, we're able to, you know, able to do both. And as I get older and less, you know, cause I'll be, cause I'm 56 now. So by the time my contract ends, I'll be 57. And it's like, eh, how much more do I really want to go to Japan? I don't know anything more than a, a couple times a year, but long tours are getting to be feeling longer. So we'll see how it goes, but it's not today or tomorrow. And in the meantime, I'll be doing, you know, collision here every week uh, while I'm in the States and I'll have a, you know, a suitable backup while I'm, while I'm in Japan, like for example, doing the G1. So it works out perfectly. Um, and I'm very excited about it. Everybody is so nice. The production staff is incredible. Talent is fantastic. It's just a, it's a great relationship to have. And, and I think the show is going to do very well. So as we stand here today or sit here today, uh, we are a few days removed from, uh, the forbidden door pay-per-view. And, uh, as Barry can tell you, my experience trying to stream that event was, Oh my God, Kevin, it was just like such a nightmare scenario that my wife and daughter completely helped me out on that. But that being said, it was an event that I think uh, was viewed extremely positively by those that watched the show uh, as someone who are calling the matches. Uh, how did you find, I'm, you know, I'm asking you how you thought the, the show went. It's not that you're like, you're going to sit there and say, oh, what a piece of crap show that was. But uh, you know, <laughs> since, I, since I know you're not going to say that, how much fun did you have calling that show? We had a blast. It was, um, it, it was a really well-paced event. I didn't feel like anything dragged or overstayed its welcome. And the the uh the idea of having so many stars on in such a big stage, there were tough spots, you know, who's going to follow who's going to follow Osprey and Omega? And how how much life did the crowd have left for Danielson and Okada? Those were like the two big questions that I had going in. Crowd was Deader than four o'clock for, you know, for the uh, match after Omega and yeah, Osprey. Or was it the six man tag yeah. with, with a lot of star power and, and they were, they were flat. Uh, and it took them about a third of the way through the main event to come back to life, but they did and they were there for everything. So yeah, it was remarkable. And you know, I think that there's so much more that can be done with the relationship how one day could we incorporate the two companies into some sort of, you know, not the G1, but some sort of mega, you know, worldwide uh, global tournament, I think would kind of be interesting to see if we could get to that point. But in the off time, if we're producing, you know, dream matches and there's still some dreams that are left, uh, then, hey, why not? Let's uh, let's keep going forward. Gotcha. And Kev, I got to tell you, I was so excited hearing your voice on the first episode of Collision. And I, I kept calling my girlfriend going, I know this guy. I know this guy. And <laughs> you were, you really, you really were just this natural fit. How much, how much preparation did you have to do ahead of time? Had you been watching AEW prior to this? I've been following it. I wouldn't say that I was a weekly viewer. Um, just because I had been like in Japan for the previous four weeks and really had no access to it at all other than the Japanese feed, you know, a couple of days later, but I wasn't, uh, you know, I just needed to know what was going on. And then it was, okay, who's going to be on the show. Okay. Am I familiar with, with what they're currently doing? And then, then go from there. We're building off of, 
you know, the idea of it was a lot of returning guys the first week, you know, with Miro coming back and Andrade coming back. The biggest fight, though, on episode one was me versus names. And it extended <laughs> into week two. I'm hoping to put this one down, you know, here for episode three, because I'm tired of doing jobs to these names. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, one of the uh, one of the guys that Barry and I have uh, been watching uh, over the course of uh, almost almost a year, I think, is uh, Takeshka. And, you know, we both uh, this past week were talking about a year from now, who is going to be a guy that could potentially be the breakout star that really goes into the main events in AEW. And we are both extremely high and have spoke glowingly about uh, about, about Takeshka. Easy for me to say. So uh, your thoughts, uh, having seen him uh, work in the fact that uh, that Ishii was uh, basically taking those shots for him. And I thought he was positioned very well on the pay-per-view. What do you think of Takeshka's future? Uh, I think Takeshita has everything that you could want in main event talent. He's got presence and size and uh, a marketable look. He's physically talented, very coordinated. Uh, he just has a, a tremendous amount going for him. Plus, he's got personality. See some of his personality in the locker room area, and it's like, okay, when the time is right, they can tap into that. The other one that I'm enthralled with and looking forward to seeing more of and working with more is Powerhouse Hobbs. I think he has everything. And I just look forward to learning more about him and, and treating this. Yeah, okay. So, you know, they've done features and they've done stuff with him on, on Dynamite before. I'm thinking that we're going to get some different audience members. And I think that the show is going to find uh, a unique audience that it's not necessarily AEW people who who only watch AEW and they watch everything of AEW. I'm hoping that we get some folks who've never seen the product before and they choose Saturday night to jump in. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm highlighting those two right off the bat. But as far as having a young nucleus of talent and directions to go, I think they're pretty well set. They've got so many guys, and there is this youth movement, which I absolutely love. But I got to tell you, I don't think that I'm going to say anything that's going to be earth-shattering here. That match between Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay might have been one of the greatest matches I have ever seen. It was that good. What do you think Will Ospreay's future in the United States will be? I think his future, it kind of depends on what Will wants to do. Will is a, he seems to be a very, uh, nomadic spirit. Um, I think, you know, a young man who, who has a lot of options. It's hard to pin him down one day to the next. He might have a different opinion tomorrow as he does today. I would think that if he wanted to be rooted in the UK, he could do that. If he, I don't know if he, I, I don't believe that he wants to live full time in Japan anymore. But I think that if he's and he said publicly that he doesn't want to live in the United States. But again, that was that was yesterday. Who knows how he feels today? Um, the world is his oyster. It would be wonderful to have the number of options that he will have. And when you're blessed with that much talent, that's what you get to do. So I think I think we'll see more of him on AEW in the next two years than probably anybody else. But uh, you want to talk about a bidding war. You want to talk about just rolling out, backing up the Brinks truck to wherever he lives. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of money changing hands here very soon. 
Well, since you were sitting ringside for both of their matches, compare and contrast, and maybe did you have a favorite between the one this past weekend and the one that Kenny and Will had in January? I'd, I preferred the one in January better uh, because Don Callis was not involved in it. Don Callis, to me, took away from it. And I just wish he wasn't there. That that at first... It, it was uh, it was unnecessary distraction. The if, whatever reason or rationale it was to try to paint Osprey as some anti-Canadian bad guy, nobody cared about that. Nobody believed it, and I, I felt that that was just wasted energy. And Callis's presence at ringside did nothing to benefit either didn't really take away at all just could have done without it and for that reason i like the january 4th match better just because it was it was fresh and it was there were i i loved how the people began to really cheer they loved kenny in japan and they kind of sort of loved will but then by the end they loved both equally and it was remarkable that was great too too i'm a i'm a huge fan of uh of Zack Sabre Jr. as well. And it's that style of wrestling. I, I was such a fan as a kid growing up in the state of Florida with guys like Billy Robinson and Tony Charles. So I see a lot of that in Zack Sabre. What do you think? Similar question. What I asked about Will Ospreay, do you think Zack Sabre has a future in this country? I know he does. And he's another nomad. In fact, I talked to him about it. I said, what are you going to do? And he says, I don't know. I just, he, he lives He's staying in Los Angeles right now. And when he goes back to Japan, he's not been living in Tokyo for a while. He's lived in a couple of different spots. Like now, I think he was in Okinawa or somewhere out that region. So way, way as far as you can get from Tokyo. And why? Just because he wants to, just because wow. he can. He just loves to see different parts of the world and experience different cultures and meet different people. So, yeah, I think, again, if he wants to do it, he will. I think it's probably a great option for him. And I, I know he'll always have a home in Japan. And, of course, if he wants to have a home in the United States, he can have one here as well, because I'm sure that AEW would continue to see him and, and feature him as much as he would want to be be a part of AEW. So one of the guys that we have not mentioned yet that has a connection with New Japan that has recently, uh, it's been a couple months ago now, uh, that has started with AEW is Jay White, Switchblade Jay White. Uh, what do you think about the way that he's been presented so far? Uh, do you look upon that as a sort of a slow grow to the character? Or do you think maybe they should have just jumped him into the fray uh, as a headliner? What do you think? No, I, 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 like, I like a slow a slow growth, a slow build. There are heightened expectations where we get to know somebody and, and we know where he is. And I don't, it, it's not like where Vince took Harley race and slapped a crown on his head or JYD and made him a barking dog. You know, they took the same character, but sort of went in a, in a slower direction with him. Yeah. And I like the tag team. A lot. Juice. Yes. That's what, and again, starting in a tag with juice that gets both of them over. And what you'll wind up with at the end of the tag run or however you want to phrase it is you'll have two over singles guys. And there you can always tap in to, well, they've got 
individual rivalries with A and B, but collectively as a tag team, they could challenge FTR or whomever the tag team champions are. So it gives it, it gives you a lot of different directions to go. But I like what they're doing. It's a patient approach. Instead of hot shotting somebody to the moon, and then what do you do? And it's real. It, it is smart booking. I would agree with that. But it's also Juice was one of those guys that I didn't immediately take to. And the more that I watch him, I realize exactly what his strengths are in the ring and how strong he is. Who who on the roster that you have not called a match for yet so far? Who are you most looking forward and calling a match for? Well, let me think now, because I just saw a bunch of guys that I hadn't really seen yet. Hmm. I'm pretty good. (laughs) I've I've enjoyed everybody. There isn't anybody that I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see what, you know, what they, what they could do. I mean, those that are, those are, I mean, of course, Adam Cole, he was supposed to wrestle in Brazil. Whenever you say his name, uh, Kevin is to say Adam Cole, baby. Uh, So Adam Cole. Adam Cole, baby, who Thank will uh, will return, you know, very soon from from being under the weather, you know, and of course uh, Britt Baker, because um, we're doing the um, there's going to be matches here for the the Owen Hart Foundation tournament, so you know, and Roderick Strong and some and Samoa Joe coming up this week. Haven't seen, haven't called a Roddy match, you know, in a minute, not since ROH, but yeah, there's there's. Uh, uh, such a wealth of talent and there will be more, you know, new fresh faces and first time, first time calling their matches as I go through. And it makes it very exciting as an announcer. So of course the next big uh, AEW event is uh, the show. It's uh, in the UK at Wembley stadium. Do you know yet whether or not you'll be uh, actively a part of that show? I have not been told, but I would, I would say it's a, you know, it's a pretty fair bet that I would be. I'd be surprised. I wouldn't. I would. I certainly wouldn't be upset if I didn't have to go. But I would be surprised if I didn't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, being a part of a show that has, you know, just like the Tokyo Dome show, uh, that shows that you've covered that have had, you know, upwards of uh, forty, fifty, sixty thousand people. That's got to just make the stage that much bigger. It's exciting, right? Um, you know, this one, of course, will be outdoors and. I hope that we're protected from the rain because, of course, you know, the uh, the rain in Spain, mainly in the plain, as they Wait say. A minute, but, you're uh, saying it what? rains in England? Is that what you're trying to tell? Our I'm listeners? saying I'm shocking everybody. It's breaking news that there is frequent showers. Come, I am on the 300th episode. And I, I want to just let everybody know to prepare. Bring your umbrellas. Bring your brawlies, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I tell you what, Kevin, it's really been a pleasure having you join us. I do have one last question uh, for you. Uh, my wife, of course, uh, the uh, the angelic Mrs. Bowdernberry, uh, is, of course, is, of course, uh, an occupational therapist, specializes in hand and wrist injuries. And, of course, uh, the news has come out that Brian Danielson wrestled the better part of his match with Okada with a broken arm. And I, I saw the x-ray. Someone posted it online and I showed it to my wife and she immediately said that ah, he's going to need a plate in that arm and he's going to have to have some pretty good therapy. Did you know at any point during that match that there was something wrong with Brian or did, did he do a good enough job of keeping it from the, uh, the people at ringside, including the announcers? We didn't know that his arm was broken, but we, we surmised that his arm was, injured and 
I was not sure if it perhaps was like a a stinger type scenario where, you know, the nerves are compressed and he's got the pins and needles running down his arm. But it was we were we were speculating on that. Is he is he injured? And I was like, his arm looks like it's dead. It looks like a passenger right now. We did not know that he had a I think they believed it was a fracture. But obviously, by seeing the x-rays, it's a, a clean break. And I think the six to eight week early diagnosis was was kind of predicated upon it being much more of a fracture, hairline fracture, something. But obviously, with that kind of break and, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a while. So but a testament. Right. And now and now we're going to he's going to go down like with Kurt Angle. How do you say it? He wrestled and beat Okada with a broken freaking arm. Yeah, <laughs> he's got to say that now. Absolutely, just an amazing, uh, gutty performance by, uh, you know, obviously one of the one of the all time greats. I, I think it's pretty fair to say. Well, Kevin, listen, hey buddy, it has been super, super uh, enjoyable having you join us on this journey that Barry and Lou and I have taken over, yay, three hundred episodes. We still are going to be out there uh, in the world of Patreon, so I hope that uh, you will continue to join us on this journey as we uh, kind of transition over to the Patreon world exclusively. But on behalf of Barry and Lou and myself, you have definitely always been there for us, a uh, a definite Barry, a definite friend of the show here on Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. We like to say Kevin's a mensch. You know, he's a mensch. He's a <laughs> exactly. He's got this big heart. He has always been there. And he's given us this great insight, Jeff, that normally uh, you wouldn't get anywhere else. So, Kevin... Much love from our side, and I hope that we can connect in the future. Yes, most definitely, and and thank you guys, and best of luck to to the to the next stop in the journey, the next uh, phase of life uh, in the Bowdrin and Barry scorebook. So yeah, and you just you just reach out, you know how to get a hold of me, Lou, Sweet Lou, of course, the best sounding producer in the business. <laughs> uh, that's, that's all I need, all I need in my life. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. We appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you soon. Now I got to ask you that story. What happened with Andre? Oh, my goodness. He was in one of those battle royals. And Don said, he said to me, you got to take, you got to take Andre to the hospital quickie. And he, what he had done is they were going to throw him over the top rope and he was fighting like crazy. And they somehow hooked his thumbnail and tore it back. Now, I mean, it hurts me just thinking about it. Ouch. So he came out of the dressing room, I mean, in pain, and he had a big towel wrapped around his thumb. And thank God I have, at the time, we had a big old uh, Sedan DeVille, one of ours, and and so I pushed the seat back as far as I could. I went, oh, this is going to be cute. Well, I was almost laying down in the driving seat to get him to the hospital. So I took him to the emergency door, and we went into the emergency door, which he ducked his head, and he went inside. There were a couple of people sitting in there, and you can imagine there was this young little boy, young boy, I'd say was probably about 12, 13 and his father. And he's sitting there and something's wrong with him. But all of a sudden, here comes Andre. It was like, you know, he was cured. He was watching Andre. So we went to check him in and the girl behind the desk 
was not a wrestling fan, obviously. And she said, just go sit down. I said, ma'am, he's got a a nail torn back. He's in pain. We'll get to him. Just hold on. Sir, what is your name? Rusimov. Would you spell that for me? So he finally sat down and the... uh, uh, she comes out from behind her little cage area or room, and she's got one wristband. She's going to put it on his wrist, and Andre looks at me, and I look at him, and I went, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so she comes over with the band. Well, it went to bent about almost not even halfway around his wrist. She went, oh, you're rather big. Let me go get another one, and she put it on him. Well, to make a long story short, as Luthez used to say, <laughs> or a short story long, uh, the door, the double doors opened and they called uh, Mr. Rusimov. And he starts getting up and I explain it like, da, 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 da. He kept coming up and up and up and up. And this little Cuban doctor standing there looking at him. And when he got, when Andre got to the door, the guy's holding the door open and Andre goes to bend down to go in and the guy says, you're not going to faint on me the doctor <laughs> he was scared to death so it was quite a night for andre but he, he it, it was just funny so, <laughs> you had to be there <laughs> no it's a great story and we uh whenever we ask andre stories for many of our guests it usually involves alcohol so it was nice to actually get his story that didn't involve uh his Barry, can, I, can i just ask uh, Dottie real quick did you ever did you ever cook for andre oh yes because I've I've heard stories on other shows where uh, Andre not only was a love of drink, but he was a great connoisseur of food. So I was curious as to what, since Barry loves food stories, what you might have, uh, if you can remember, what kind of stuff you prepared for Andre. Oh, I, I remember quite well. I made some steaks. I made him quite a few steaks. And uh, I took my salad bowl that stands up. It has a stand on it. And it's, you know, like they bring in the restaurant and mix the salad in and everything. That was his salad bowl. I put it right next to him at the table. I wouldn't, you know, I was like, well, you know, no sense making him go back and back for salad. Plus the fact I didn't want him to get up and down out of my chairs because I was like, oh, my God, are these going to hold him? (laughs) So I made a big, huge salad. And I made, I think he ate like three steaks and uh, the salad and uh, baked potato. And uh, in the meantime, polished off about 12 beers in the nighttime, too. <laughs> and then we took him to the to the hotel. But he had quite he had quite an appetite, quite an appetite. Yeah, that's and that's uh, that's Andre. That's uh, you know, I, I well beers. I, it was a light night for Andre Bear. Well, was, I, well, you know, I'm with the Temperance League, so <laughs> <laughs> the be- the best thing that everybody loves when they come to this house when they when they get to Andre. You know, obviously, if anybody's involved with wrestling, did you know Andre? And Andre sat on. I ha- we have these two that called double couches um you know they got two cushions on them and they they would seat maybe two maybe three people if you want but it's not like a regular long living room sofa so we have two of those in our in our den and he sat in the middle of the one and he just stretched his arms along the back cushions and his arms 
went out like octopus legs and his hands were hanging over the sides of the cushions. So when anybody comes to the house and I tell them that story, they say, where did he sit? And I show them and they get in the chair and they go, I sat in the chair where Andre sat. Uh, so, Dottie, this is a question I have to ask, and uh, I think I've been asking you this for years, but you started writing a book, and this goes back, I don't know, five, ten years ago, and you've there were some challenges along the way which prevented you, but do you think that I will be seeing this book over the next couple of years? Because i got to tell you, I'm pretty excited just the thought of it. Uh I think you you will, and I'm going to tell you that today probably uh, put a spark underneath me because I thought, I don't want to sound stupid, so I went and got Don's book of where he'd been and started looking through uh, from, you know, 1951 on, and I went, you know, this this will help me so much. I, I went, there's a story. There's a story. There's the story when Pat O'Connor was in the house and cut the turkey with two big spoons. There's a story with Andre. There's a story with Eddie. There's a story with Dusty. And I'm like, wow. So I think it will. The the biggest challenge to me has been, and I'll be very frank with you, uh, I'm much better about it now. And I think talking has helped me. But when Don passed, I could not write the book for a couple of years because when Don had the dementia, he was like a child with, you know, they demand your attention. And if you don't give them the attention, they start wandering. Then you got to go, where are they? And so I could not concentrate and I had to devote myself to Don <clears throat> and doing things with him. And then when he went down, of course, he went to hospice, and he was there for eight days. And after he passed away, uh, I tried to pick up on the book, and I couldn't do it. It kept <laughs> getting emotional now, but it just brings it back up to the surface. And all the good, what a good man he was, and how good he was he was a wonderful husband, a wonderful father, and a wonderful friend. And so I had to put the book down. And then I started it again. And I've got some chapters done. And I think if I open that back up, they'll be revised at this point because I really couldn't write some of the things that I need to write in it. I think this the uh, talking the other day about somebody else's tragedy, but involved in the business has helped me too. And of course, you pushing me, Barry, and a couple of people saying, get the book done, get the book done. And finally, my daughters said, mom, you've got to write the book. And I'm like, oh, nobody's going to want to read this. You know, it's getting, he's been gone so long, but I found out that's not true. And uh, the people who have contacted me since they saw the show um, the other day, uh, Tara up in Ontario, she said, this had the largest viewer audience from these episodes ever, Dottie, since she says, she said, you did it. And I said, 
Well, it's because I contacted 199,999 people. <laughs> so you got in touch I th- with all I your friends. That's how you did it. Then, yeah. uh, I, I'll tell you what. That's the one thing I will say about the wrestling. I, I have more lovers than Lady Chatterley did. They're all wrestlers, and they call, and they come to the house. They stay here, and the uh, Ronnie Carvin comes here with his wife, Glenda. And now, every time they're at the IGA store up in tennis, up in West Virginia, when she goes in the store, he's in the car, he calls me, and he'll go, I got to go, Glenda's here. So the other day, he he said to me, uh, he said, I got to be careful. And I said, why? He said, because Glenda said every time she gets in the car, I say, I got to hang up on you. So she thinks we're having an affair. <laughs> <laughs> she knows better. But I've got some wonderful friends. Cowboy Bill Watts is on emails with me daily, almost. And I, I enjoy that because he's having some hard times. Uh, Mac... <clears throat> McMurray, when he was alive, he used to come down, and if he was coming to go to West Palm to something, he would stay with me. I used to threaten him not to have cat food in his car because he loves animals, and he'd bring it and put it out in the yard, and then when he'd leave, I'd look around and I'd see a couple of cats staring at me like, well, where's my food? <laughs> but uh, So I am I am fortunate that wrestling has, has been a... Uh, a life saver to me because they keep Don, you know, alive to me. Well, you know, honestly, one of the things that, uh, again, here, here I keep saying this, that Barry and I've talked about previously is how hard it is, uh, and how hard it was to have a long lasting marriage or even relationship in the pro wrestling business. And I know that, uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. I know Bob Armstrong and his wife were together a long time. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, it's such a tribute not only to you, but to Don that your marriage lasted that long. Well, we, you know, sometimes the chemistries are there. I had a card which I gave to Don and it just about summed it up one day. Uh, the card had two figures sitting on a park bench and they were sort of like, you know, not symmetrical or that. They they were sort of weird looking with these big, long, gangly necks and, you know, it just their bodies was, were not in proportion or anything. And it said, we belong together. And inside it said, because nobody else would have us. <laughs> and that's about what sums us up. We our chemistry worked. We supported each other in anything we did. And that's why I was so involved with the wrestling. I was there for Don. He worked hard at it. And I was there for him with the amateur. I I became an international licensed uh, uh, pairer for wrestling because I went every place. He refereed. I paired. I even had my kids involved. They were runners, as they call them. And then he got involved with the police here and he started the PAL here and they started wrestling and then he had the phone ring and a guy calls him he didn't know from Adam at a school here and he said uh, I want to start 
a wrestling going. I've, I have it at my school, but no other schools have it there. We, you know, they don't have any, any teachers. That's all Don had to know. He goes over to the guy's house. The guy has a Tahoe. They roll up a one section of a mat, shove it in his car, take it to this school, have some clinics there, take it to the next school, have some clinics there. And they developed wrestling. And I want to say before we get off the subject, there are some angels in wrestling. And that was Jack Briscoe. Yes. Jerry, not an angel in heaven, but on earth. Uh, Jerry is my brother. His family has adopted me. I told him I will be, I will accept being your sister, but no blood. We're not cutting our fingers. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, uh, I, I just, I'm very fortunate to be where I am, and it was because of Don, and he was fortunate because I was there supporting him. I wasn't, a inter, you know, I wasn't interfering or worried about him. There was no jealousy in our, our marriage. I'd have killed him if he'd have fooled around. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and Jeff Jeff brought up such a great point too that uh, to have a successful marriage and the love that you have for Don obviously continues. You and I are friendly, and I, I see your posts on Facebook, and uh, you still carry a torch for the man. How is it? Uh, and, and I feel this absolutely goes along with it. I have never heard a negative word spoken about Don ever, and in in the wrestling business. Even saints will have their detractors. Don Curtis has zero detractors. Well, I that's beautiful. Thank you for saying that. And I hope that is true. I think there are probably some, you know, that were in opposition or that might have, you know, said something. But I don't know of any either. And that's one of the things that makes me feel so good is that people say so many things nice about him. And believe me, he was one hell of a guy. Yeah, absolutely, too. And I uh, I think I've reminded you, but I got to speak to Don once. And uh, I take it back. It was twice. I saw him once at a Cauliflower Alley Club. I think it was the one in Tampa in 96. Were you there? I'm assuming you were there. there as well. Yeah, I so you there. were there as well. And then I called you, oh, 2001, 2002. And uh, this was Don was going through his health struggles. But I, uh, I, I did a brief, I guess, an interview in a sense. And you were so – you didn't know me, but you were so courteous to me uh, that I never forgot that. And, well, I wouldn't uh, be now because I do know you. Well, exactly. I mean, who could blame you now? I mean, that's – you know. <laughs> yeah, once, once you get to know Barry, you don't want to be courteous. <laughs> Isn't that the I truth? Have, I have to tell you a, a story, which I've never told you, is that years and years ago, going back to when we first came up here, our phone would ring, and it was a kid at that time, and he just drove Don crazy, and I thought you were the same person. Uh-huh. You know why? Your <laughs> well, last name. Shannon Rose. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> oh, there you God. go. There's a memory. 
the late Shannon Rose. May he always rest in peace. And Johnny, I have a, before, and I'm going to completely circle back. And uh, Jeff, I know you've got a long list of questions, but I this was on mine. I somehow skipped over it. We were talking about Jimmy Murdoch earlier, and it was funny. You had mentioned on the posters, and I've got about 50 of these, and it would say it would have these ridiculous numbers on them: 150,000, oh. 160,000. Oh. Oh. It was. Clear, like, okay, kayfabe in in the 1960s, but Jimmy, when Jimmy disappeared, uh, you know, literally, it it almost seemed like it was almost overnight. He was was. gone. It was, right? And then he was gone for 10 years, and then all of a sudden, around 1975, made this brief comeback that I believe lasted 14 days, where he had hooked up with the IWA and, and the had IWA. all the people in masks. There was a lot of people in masks, but this was the IWA with oh. Mil Moscaris. And uh, oh. they they came in, and Jimmy was, I guess, the local promoter. This was the company that was owned by Eddie Einhorn out of Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So, it, but this was a two-week process, and they were gone from Jacksonville. Any memories of that scenario? No, not at all, because we weren't intimidated by it at all. In Jacksonville, everybody knew that Jimmy had made his run. I'll tell you how Jimmy got back into it. A very dear friend of ours, his name is Bob Sabarin. He was a hockey player from Canada. And Bob started promoting here, and then he got into some involvement with Jimmy. He was bringing in the monster trucks and he was bringing in some other things. And, uh, he, he hooked up with Jimmy cause Jimmy had a, an office. And I guess, I don't know if even Bob was involved with that scenario as far as bringing in the wrestling or that. I have no idea, but, um, but yeah, that's he got back. I guess he got, you know, uh, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd, sort of thing. And so he thought he was coming back. But by that time, he, you know, he had some age on him. So, one of the things that uh, Barry and I, you know, as we talk about all the different guys that went through CWF, and since you mentioned that you knew all these guys that went through CWF, my very first wrestling hero going back to the very first match that my grandmother took me uh, to in uh, Savannah, Georgia. Grandmas grandmas do a lot for their Of course, that's that. true. Very Shout true. out to my grandmother, the late Corrine Bunton. I love her still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main event that night was Bobby Shane uh, and Doug the Professional Gilbert taking on the Assassins. And, of course, tragically, Bobby was killed in a plane crash. Do you have any memories of the late Bobby Shane? Yes, I do. Uh, just gone too soon. A fabulous, fabulous uh, person uh, and wrestler. So colorful in that. And, of course, he was the one who tagged on with the you and your 1952 haircut. And that stuck. <laughs> Everybody awesome. tells Don. We remember Bobby, you know, with his 52 haircut and... Uh, of course, the night that he was killed in Tampa Bay, uh, we were asleep, and 
there was a knock on the window right behind our bed, scared my husband and I out to death. But there was this young fellow who was a very good amateur wrestler from uh, Mankato, Minnesota. And Don had taken him and around with him to do amateur wrestling, high school refereeing with him, and we became good friends uh, with him. And so he knew where our bedroom was, and he knocked on the window and he said, Don, Don, get up, get up, get up. Bobby Shane's been killed in a plane wreck. Well, he immediately thought of Eddie and, you know, other guys. And, of course, there were other guys in that horrible wreck. And uh, so it was tragic to have lost him like that. And the only one who didn't come out of that plane, I've heard two stories. One, that he couldn't get the seatbelt open, that it jammed, and the other, that he couldn't swim. So I don't know which is correct. Maybe you do. I can tell you what I've heard is that, you know, and again, right, who knows, but Bobby had hit his head and uh, was unable to get it. I had never heard couldn't swim, but I heard that he couldn't get uh, the seatbelt off. But I did hear that uh, he was possibly unconscious from hitting his head, and then thus he wouldn't have been able to get the seatbelt off. So, Well, I've also heard that they heard him yelling, so the boys heard him yelling right. on that. But, so I don't know. The whole thing is that it's amazing that only one of them was killed because Don was in a plane crash, down, not a crash, but he was in a plane accident, an incident. And, you know, you fly for lo- and long enough, you're going to have one. And he was in the plane with <clears throat> Eddie. Eddie was not flying. Eddie was drinking at that time, and I think he might have got scared. And so he had hired a pilot to fly the plane. And it could be that some of the guys wouldn't fly with him. I don't know. But anyway, he had a pilot uh, to fly the plane, and then he flew right seat, and Don and Joe Scarper were in the back. So that's a lot of weight in a in a small plane. <clears throat> and so. Uh, I was at Joe Scarper's house with his wife, Mary, waiting for them to come home. And again, they were down like in West Palm, and that's where they used to fly, West Palm and Miami. So I'm not sure where it was that night. But anyway, it got later and later, and they weren't home yet. And all of a sudden... uh, I woke up, and it's weird because Mary woke up too, and we said, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And finally, about one thirty in the morning, and we had called to see if there was a plane accident or anything, nothing. Uh, so about one thirty, pretty shaken up, Joe and Don come in the house, and Joe is really hurting. His back is killing him. And they come into the house, and what had happened was Eddie was sitting in the right seat, and of course the yoke was right in his lap, and he went to stretch. And when he did, he pushed that yoke with his knees, and the pilot wasn't ready for that to happen, so he had sort of relaxed. They're just flying along, and all of a sudden the plane's going in a nosedive, and all that weight in it, and when it went into the nosedive, Luckily, he didn't rip the wings off the plane. He flew it out of that that dive, and when he did, he whipped it up a little faster than he should, you know, should have. But 
they were going down and it was dark and and uh, <clears throat> probably coming over the swamps or something. And so when he pulled it up, it threw Eddie back over the seat. And and so he was he, uh, you know, almost broke his back and it took and it ripped the seat that Joe was in because he was big. When when Eddie came back, it forced Joe back and it knocked the seat off the skids that it rides on and slammed him into the tail end of the plane. And it threw the luggage door open. Uh, so that went flying open, and here's Joe pinned against the back of the plane. Now the guy's got it up with the nose up, and now he though he's worried about the thing stalling out instead of diving. <laughs> and so he's got to bring it. So when he brought it back down to level, again, scared to as he was, Eddie went flying back up the front and hit his head on the on the the panel. And uh, Joe, you know, came up in the seat. Now his seat's not even attached. So he had to ride back in all the way into Tampa and for them to land and everything with his seat loose. But so it was it was, you know, pretty dangerous. So there's been some horrible accidents down there with the planes. I'm but, sure. Too. But uh, but uh, Bobby's. Bobby's was and, and Bobby and and Dennis McCord and 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 uh, Buddy Colt. I mean, those guys really they were the ones that that got hurt. And Dennis McCord was another one that showed up in Sunbelt uh, yes. at one point yes. underneath. Yes. Yeah, Austin Idol uh, came in. So, a question I wanted to ask you, and, and too, Steve Kern, we had Steve at our last fan fest, Steve and Jerry Briscoe together, uh, in a segment, 50 Years of Friendship, where they were basically telling stories, but somebody had asked, uh, Steve about the sleeper hold and where he learned it from. And of course, Don came up, uh, that was the name, and Steve, Steve, Steve told a great story, uh, about being able to knock guys out with the sleeper hold, but not being able to wake them up. And, uh, I guess, yeah, exactly. I guess he forgot, I guess he forgot to ask Don to teach him that. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. But, uh, eventually he figured that out. But I know that I've got, uh, and I've seen several photos of Don actually applying the sleeper to fans in various arenas and uh, literally putting them to sleep and waking them up was certainly at, you know, in hindsight, that that looks like that could be a very dangerous thing, especially with everybody being as litigious as they are. Was that ever a concern when that was taking place? Uh, yes, and it's amazing Don didn't get sued. In fact, I said to him, you've got to stop this. One night, he was he was someplace, and they used to tell the promoters, they'd say, we want you to put the sleeper on, because they knew he could do it. He learned it from a Japanese wrestler, and he did it well. He even trained the Tampa police force with it. <laughs> like they said, Ed, Sheriff Blackburn said, Don, you need to stop showing it to him. Every Everybody that's getting arrested is on the ground asleep. You know, the police are putting them to sleep because it it works so quick. If you apply it right, a couple of seconds of you know pushing against the carotid artery and you put them out, and if you don't let them go, you could kill them. But uh, uh, you know, so Don was in an arena, and the promoter said, "I want you to put somebody to sleep." And Don said, "Look, I'll do it." 
But you need to, when he's coming up into the ring, you need to smell his breath. And if he's drunk, don't let him in the ring because he'd had an incident. No, 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 we'll take care of it. So Don's up in the ring, and uh, here comes this guy. And when he gets into the ring, you could smell the alcohol, Don said. And he was so mad at the promoter for doing it. I don't know if he put him to sleep. I don't think he did because he figured he'd kill him with that. But, uh, yeah, it it was not to be played with. But a couple of fellas tried to do it. And that's when Don said, somebody's going to get killed with this. So I'm, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, Barry, when uh, Dottie was talking about uh, the Bobby Shane incident, uh, I was trying to remember at one of the fan fest, I think it might have been J.J. Dillon that uh, told the story that he had just arrived in the territory uh, maybe a night or two before the incident. And his lasting memory was he was on another plane that was flying back to Tampa. And he looked and saw the uh, plane with Buddy and Gary Hart and uh, Mike McCord and Bobby. And his lasting memory was seeing Bobby looking out the window, waving at them. And he was probably in Lester's plane. He was either in Lester's plane or uh, or Sonny. um Help me with the name, Sonny Myers. He was in, probably with one of them because both of them, well, mostly Lester. If Lester was in the territory then, because Lester and and um, Eddie were the ones who would who would take the guys to some of the territories over to the Bahamas and down to you know West Palm and Miami and that. So I, it probably was. If you ask him, it probably was Lester. Because Lester had the had the twin twin plane at that time. So since you were so involved uh, in Don's career and going to the matches and helping uh, pretty much any way, obviously. How did I, be, how did I become famous? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that was appeared on our show, but that's another story altogether. But what I wanted to ask you, uh, and I'm I'm wondering if the answer that I have in my head is right, but. Taking out of the equation Don, of course, who you might have a tad of a bias with, but was there any other guy, I'm just going to say in CWF history, that you watched and even though you were married to Don, you were like, this guy I like so much, uh, he's so good that I'm a fan of this guy. Who would that guy have been? I admired, wasn't so much as a fan as I was. Uh, admired them. I admired uh, Hiro Matsuda. I absolutely admired Jack Briscoe. I'm ah, that was the guy that I was, that's the guy I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Don, just there's nothing that you could say about him that uh, would be negative as far as wrestling. One of the most knowledgeable, tough guys. Hero, unbelievable. Uh, I would say, you know, I mean, if, if I went back in my head. I don't want to leave others out. Uh, Bob Roop, any of the guys who had uh, that amateur college background were great. Dory, my goodness, and Terry. I love Terry. Uh, and, uh, but, but Jack, Jack just comes to mind, um, you know, immediately in Hero. So uh, yeah, there were a lot of them. I, 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 if I went back, I could name some, probably about 
six or seven to give them full credit, and then others go and they were good. But, but yeah. So, so was when that we're, my the was that the answer you wanted? No, no, that's fine. I, I was thinking you might say Jack Briscoe based on a comment you made earlier. But uh, so uh, yeah. since you also mentioned Hero, I'll give myself half credit, Barry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Okay>. now <laughs> I will tell you once. I'll tell you another one, and uh, uh, and he was a great teacher too. Was Carl Gotch, and Carl, unfortunately, Eddie was afraid of him. Uh, so Carl never really got to go places here. And Carl, because of where he was from over there, a good old tough German, a Belgian, a Belgian, and that uh, he just he he just couldn't make it because he 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 was uh, a, a wrestler, a wrestler's wrestler, and he didn't want any of this other you know stuff. So. He was, he was, you know, his own worst enemy as far as the professional wrestling business went, but very revered. Well, Barry, uh, now she's gone down a rabbit hole. I'm going to have to jump in here before you ask your next Please. question. Go, I know what you're going <laughs> to say. Go right oh, ahead. I, I just, I'm like a little mouse climbing down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was going to say was I was very fortunate uh, that uh, through uh, the great Malenko, Larry Simon, uh, he introduced me to Carl, and I was able to do an interview with Carl, uh, which is a good Lord, Barry. That was 35 years ago, and it's still one of the highlights of my career as a wrestling fan is being able to sit down and talk with uh, with Carl Gotch. And I, I remember one of the things that Carl said was when we talked, I, I said, oh, who are, who are guys that you're not a fan of? And he mentioned, and I was really surprised, but then when he explained it, I understood how he was not a fan of Harley Race. Because, uh, he didn't like some of the, uh, the crazy bumps that Harley took and he thought it sort of degraded wrestling in a way, uh, at least in Carl's mind. And, uh, he was, uh, you know, very much, uh, the proverbial old school, you know, oh, and yeah. anything that was showy, Carl didn't like it. Well, he's European. I mean, you know, he's from, he's from a different concept over there too, you know, so, so that, and he, he never transitioned. Let's talk about another very tough European. At one point, I believe, uh, was in consideration for the world's strongest man, a guy that promoted uh, Orlando Leesburg, O'Galley. Milo Steinborn. Yes. I know you knew Milo extremely well. Please tell us some stories about about that that fine gentleman. You know, I'm not going to have to write the, vo- the book after this interview. <laughs> We're stealing your thunder, Doc. <laughs> you are stealing my thunder, but I'll, I can, I'll tell it again. Now, Milo was a very dear friend of ours. I'm going to tell you two stories with him, but the first one is, to me, just blows my mind. We would go and stay at his house. He had a back, a, a house behind his house that was his too, and in the bottom was his garage. At the top, you go upstairs. He had a lovely apartment up there. And when people came to his house uh, that he liked, he would let you stay up there. And so we would, we were there one night, and we had gone out for dinner. And we came back, and we were sitting in Milo's living room. Uh, his wife was passed away at the t- uh, Vivian passed away by then. And he liked, really liked having company around him. And he liked Don, 
because he knew Don was, you know, a tough guy too. And um, so we're sitting there in the living room and he's got his legs crossed and I'm looking down at his legs because uh, his pants come up a little bit. I'm looking at his ankles and his legs and I'm going, oh my God, that poor man, his circulation is so bad. So <clears throat> we went up to the apartment to sleep. And so I said, oh God, Don, I said, do you know what's wrong with my Los legs. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, they're, they're black and blue. I mean, there's circulation in his legs. Something's wrong. And so Don, my husband could put me up to some stuff and he had a little smirk on his face. I should have known it at the time. And he said, well, when we go downstairs tomorrow for breakfast, he said, ask him. I said, I don't want to ask him. He said, ask him. Trust me, ask him. So we go downstairs, and I'm hemming and hawing, and Don looks at Milo and says, Milo, would you tell her why your legs are discolored? And she feels, she thinks that your circulation is bad. And he looks at me, and he says, with his German accent, he says, when I was in the ring, he said, I could not stand those high top boots. I'd get tired of of uh, putting the lacing the boots up to the top. He said, so I didn't want to wear them anymore. So I went to the tattoo man and had him tattoo the high tops. And I wore I wore short short shoes from then on. Oof. So he had tattooed the high the like the high top boot onto his legs so he wouldn't have to lace up boots. Well, and Daddy, you told me a story years ago about how Milo had a pair of shoes that he loved, I guess, but wasn't able to fit into. Oh, and... God, that's another one. Please. <laughs> <laughs> now, here we go. Chapter three. Now, yeah. we're sitting in his office. Now, his office was a sight to behold. All of his, you know, he was uh, health and strength, uh, uh, a weightlifter in that. And he had these bookcases, and they were all made of marble. I mean, they must have weighed a ton. Like he said, when I die, they won't have to buy me a, a coffin or, or a grave. They can just take the tops off of these and bury me. But but anyway, I'm in there, and we're sitting at his desk. He always sat at his desk, and oh, my God, the stories would come out of him. And I'm looking up on a shelf right behind him. And the one thing that up is up there is a cast of Primo Canero's hand, a big one. And then there's a bottle. And I didn't know what was in it. There was something little in it, and it had liquid all the way up to the top. So I said, Milo, what's in that bottle? And he said, that's my little toe. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, I had a... A, a corn or something on the on my toe, and so I couldn't buy regular shoes that fit me that when I that were were not very expensive because it would hurt my feet when I put them in there. So I decided to have my toe taken off, and now I can wear cheap shoes. So he had his toe floating in formaldehyde up on the up on the shelf. Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> so we've got tattooed. Legs, <laughs> and we've got our toe off. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to the rest I didn't want to. I didn't want to go any further than that. 
Yes, please. It's a family show, exactly. <laughs> oh. Well, listen, Dottie, uh, on behalf of Barry, myself, and Lou, I have to tell you, this has been an extremely fun uh, hour and 20 minutes uh, plus that we've had with you. We've really enjoyed it. And, you know, Barry and I were tech, uh, texting each other secretly while we're talking to you. And Barry said, should we ask her to come back and join us again if she would be willing to do that? Would you be willing to uh, tell us more stories of the pro wrestling business that you've experienced? I would love to do it. I have had fun too. I, as you know, uh, I love to talk and I love to talk. Get out of town. Fav- really? <laughs> Get out. <laughs> and I'd love to talk about my fa- favorite subjects. One, my husband. We didn't even, don't, don't ask me about my grandchildren and great grandchildren or you'll need a week. But, and I'd love to talk about the good side of wrestling. We, we did the dark side of wrestling. Uh, it was very emotional. I have watched that show three times now and cried harder each time and, uh, keep looking at Nicole and thinking, my God, you know, there is one of the strongest women I have ever been around. And seeing uh, Brian and Kevin do that show, just the sincerity in their voices and their love for Mike uh, just, you know, endears me too. And I know that Steve Kern is torn up too. And uh, they are, I've watched those guys since they were young guys in Tampa. And they're beautiful, beautiful people, and I'm so proud to call them all my friends. So, you know, Barry, here on our very last episodic uh, episode of – is that a, is that a phrase? Episodic yeah, episode it's a phrase. Sure. Of Breaking Cafe with Bowder and Barry, episode 300. We wanted to make it a star-studded, jam-packed, uh, guest-starring edition. So we reached way back into the past to episode – I don't know if it was two or three – of this very fine Peabody award-winning podcast. And I said, let's call Bruce. No, no, that wouldn't be allowed. We might get in trouble for that. What the hell? Let's call John Hitchcock. Johnny Hitch, welcome back to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Well, it's nice to be here for such an auspicious reunion. Um, It's the circle of life, Johnny. I'm I'm glad you could do without me for, you know, 207 (laughs) damn things. Uh, you know, but congratulations for getting it going that long. So, well, that's what we're known for, uh, the, the stamina, the long-lasting nature, uh, right, Barry? Oh, yeah, we're known for, right, we're, Jeff and I are both, especially at this stage, we're, we're both 60-minute men. That's yes, absolutely exactly. correct. Much like that. Your cardio is so, looking pretty strong, okay. <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> well, Johnny Hitch, uh, you know, uh, first of all, uh, our favorite comic book store owner, uh, in the greater Greensboro, North Carolina area, parts unknown. If you're ever in that area, we encourage you to go in and say hello to Johnny Hitch. And Johnny, you're of course well known as one of the guys from, uh, front row Greensboro. And, uh, there was, there was, uh, another guy. What was his name? I can't remember. Uh, Bo Oben Johnson well, must be who I'm thinking of. Oben Johnson yes, and uh, Eddie Beeson and, uh, Rusty Neese. And, uh, Bud and Lisa Grandi and her sister, uh, and, and I mean, you know, and there was another guy, uh, who's, who's warmly regarded in North Carolina, but that about, he's, all. he's a dookie in more ways than one. But anyway, I will say, Barry, one of the things that, uh, I always appreciated by the, 
about the front row guys uh, from Greensboro is they were one of the first really recognizable collection of fans that cheered for the heels. This was something that was not done uh, back in the day. Uh, you, your life was in peril if you were to do something like that. And uh, Johnny and his group, uh, they took no prisoners uh, at front row ringside. So, Johnny, I know uh, some 290-plus episodes ago you told the story. Can you regale all our new listeners and some of our old listeners with the story about the time that the Russians came to Greensboro? Well, you know, it was kind of funny because I was walking around the Greensboro Coliseum, and this is when Ivan, Nikita, and Crusher were just really kind of going crazy. You know, they'd won the world tag titles, and Nikita was green as grass, and uh, and they came in. I was walking around the Coliseum, and I saw these two guys, sit, or three guys, sitting by themselves, and they were wearing red shirts with, with a, not a hammer and sickle on the front that said Ivan Crusher and Nikita. And I was like, I got to meet these guys. They're great. You know, they're, they're these guys are nuts. So I introduced myself. It turned out we kind of knew some people. And we finally got together for the first time, you know, in one group with like 13 with 13 people. So, uh, you know, it was funny because J- I was talking to J.J. Dillon and I said, uh, I said, you know, I hate to bother you, but you're walking around here, so I guess you're expecting to be bothered. And he started laughing. He goes, what? And I asked him about the night of the horseman, you know, when that started. And he looked at me, and he goes, was that you? I said, yeah. We moved down to the front row, and he went, he said, I'll never forget that day as long as I live. He said, I may forget a lot of stuff, but I remember that and totally remembered it, too, where we spelled out horseman, and then we flipped the sign and spelled out romper room. Well, after that, the Russians came on strong, and we had these guys that were crazy for the Russians. So we said, Let, why don't we go ahead and push it? And and so I I started go. I went to the match with these guys, and I wore a green military jacket, long jacket, and I had a red button on my coat on my my coat that said, you know, I said this is from the KGB, and I we went, and I just sat I sat with this group. Uh, our group, and there was this lady and her family, and this lady was going crazy. I mean, it, we talk about, you know how it is when you get somebody on a hook and you start messing with, you start playing with them? We've never done uh, that, have we, Barry? Oh, no, we don't do that. No, not us. So I walked, I, I, I walked in, and I said, it is great to be here at the Greensboro Coliseum. I am here to see my uncle Ivan Nikita and Crusher, and Crusher is the only American in this country that has any brains because he loves Mother Russia. And this lady just snaps. I mean, she goes crazy. She goes, let me tell you something right now. I got a son. He's fighting a war right now to keep this country safe. And I don't appreciate you sitting there cheering for the commies. And I looked at her and I went, old lady, why are you acting this way? I am merely, I have green card. I am here visiting and cheering for my countrymen. And you people are treating me so rudely. But then again, you are a, a old brutal old lady with obviously challenged educationally that is problems with you old lady and she was like i have a son i said what war secret war cia war what are you talking about old lady we will win this country we will win this battle we will and, and uh, this is a true story there's another lady that went nuts but this is i'll put both stories together this lady said you're the only person here cheering for the goddamn russians and i went you're wrong old lady and i stood up and I pointed to a group over here that I knew who they were. And I pointed and I saluted them, you know. 
and they all stood up and saluted me. And then my little brother had a crew over here to the, to the left, and I stood up and saluted him. And they, all, and they stood up and saluted, and I said, See, old lady, we are taking over your stupid country, and we are doing it first through wrestling. That's just where we're taking over your country. And this, <clears throat> this lady went, went crazy yelling at me. So, you know, we worked her pretty, 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 pretty hard. So. Oh, that's great. And as Jeff mentioned, too, you guys were at the time, too, and I guess we were all smart marks, and I guess we all still are smart marks, okay. but you pretty guys much. were, yeah, exactly, right? You guys were the, uh, maybe the most famous of the smart marks. Was there ever a period where you felt you guys might have gone a little too far or you did something that maybe you regretted? We never, we never used four letter words. I mean, we never like cussed people out and we never used that to the wrestlers because we knew that, for example, the road warriors had better lawyers than we did. So <laughs> uh, you had to be careful. I mean, we were yelling one night in Winston. I started yelling at a, talking about going too far i started yelling at the road warriors and i started calling them leather boys you know i was like kind of getting at them going <laughs> yeah i said you guys are in leather i know where you bought that stuff you know blah 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 you know it's totally can't use that stuff now but and i started picking at them and suddenly hawk just snaps and he jumps the rail and he goes like five rows deep in greensboro we were always front row but winston we could get what we could get and he was going to me and suddenly took a left turn and went up to this guy who was about five, six and about 300, obviously dweebish, if you get my drift. And he just looked at him. He said, OK, you son of a bitch. You want to be a man? You want to be tough? You want to talk all that garbage? He said, I'll give you a free shot. Go ahead. Hit me right now. Give me a free shot. I'll, I'll let you be a big man in front of your, your friends. Take a shot. And I'm sitting there going, holy, and he's yelling and screaming, and you know, he's bigger than shit, you know. And I was going, holy. and the guy just froze like a statue. And he goes, that's what I thought. You're nothing but a pussy. You're nothing but a damn pussy. And he's screaming. And, and the referee is in the ring going, you know, Tommy Young's going, holy shit. And Animal's like, uh, Hawk, we need to get back in the ring, you know. I mean, at least Animal had some control. And they got him out of there. But I, I was, I tell you, that was when I said, you know. I think we need to be careful when we yell at the road warriors because there's definitely some roid rage action going on around here somewhere, and it doesn't take much to have them go off. But so, the reason why the front row became popular is because we wore coats and ties and hats and sunglasses, and we sat in the same place in the Section D area, you know, for, I don't know, about six years straight in Greensboro. So if you went to a, any show in Greensboro, we were there, and it was kind of a constant. And then, of course, Funny thing was, one day, one day I'm watching, and suddenly the local commercial comes comes on, and Tully Blanchard's there, and he's been interviewed, I think, by Shivani, and he goes, you know, last night, last week we were in Greensboro, and we dominated everything. You know, we don we kicked everybody's ass, we got all the belts, blah 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 blah. And he goes, and you know, Sting's got their little fans, and Doctor Death has their little fans, but as you people in Greensboro know, the Horsemen have their own fans, and you know who I'm talking about. They're on the front row. They're styling, profiling. They're wearing suits and ties and sunglasses. That's our fans. That is our fans, the Horseman fans. And he goes, and from now on, I want everybody to understand that Greensboro is the home court of the Four Horsemen. When he finished that interview, my phone blew up. People were calling, Tully Blanchard's talking about you, Jesus. And Arn did the same thing once. He did an interview once talking about us. So it, it became kind of a thing that, you know, people would – shoot for i mean people would 
I would have people call me when wrestling got sucky, you know, and they say, are you going to be there? I said, you're going to be there. He goes, well, we're tossing a coin if we're going to go or not. But if you guys are going to be there, it'd be funny. So we'll go, we'll go. Because wrestling got, you know, during Turner, it got pretty shitty. So anyway, so we just well, were let me just very ask you, visible. The, the, the Hawk thing that you just talked about, was mm-hmm. that him mistaken that guy for what you were saying? Or did he yeah, just Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. He just so, took the wrong turn. If well, he would have got the on me. I, the reason I mentioned I that is because I don't know if you recall there was one particular afternoon show in St. Petersburg, I believe, when I think uh, Doug Dillinger took a wrong turn uh, and uh, chewed you out for something that maybe somebody else had done. You did it. You no, it was open. It was open. I'm telling you. Uh, you, I've seen the clip. It does exist with you doing the blowjob <laughs> scene at Missy Hyde. They don't back off of that. There's a, there's proof for that. But uh, you, know, you had a beard then, and Doug Dillinger doctor. was told to get the guy. With the beard out of there. And I was like, Doug, not, it wasn't me. And he goes, get your, you're going to get out of here. I said, Doug, I came away from Greensboro to Florida. You can't throw me out. He goes, okay, sit down and quit causing trouble then. Okay. Thank God for that. So, but you're the one who did that. You're the one who stirred it up. And you want me to tell that story so I can put you over. That's what I think. I think Mr. Rose needs, I need to put him over. That's what I I think you should. You should figure out. Yeah, figure out some way to try to put me over. I don't know how that can be done, but, uh, yeah. So I was going to ask you about the Jeff Missy Hyatt blowjob story. And coincidentally, we actually have heat with Missy. Go figure. So yeah, that kind of works out like that. So first off, I, I got to say, John, I think it was, it was the second or third episode. It was Jeff and myself. And then it was, I think Jeff and you. And then Jeff and John McAdam, and then Brian last opened up his checkbook for me. So, of course, that's where I slid in. But I think of you, John, on almost a daily basis, and I want to tell you why. It's and not just important. in that special not, way. Not, a, not alone when you're reading Penthouse or anything, are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> you I, you know, I was going to leave that when we were off air and we could talk okay, about okay. it. But uh, at, at, some of you may know, some of you may not know, but the three of us get a, a, a newsletter, uh, some 30 – 30-something years ago, uh, we were doing a newsletter, and newsletters were all the rage back then. Why? Because the Internet didn't exist, so we were able to do it. Mm -hmm. This is how we, the smart fans or the smart marks, that's how we like to communicate. Uh, Jeff was the lead columnist, and John was our official, I guess our official art guy, and, and you did some amazing things for us. I remember the Stan Hansen, Vern Gagne cover that you did you did a great vader cover but you did something that was really special and when my father passed away uh, as i'll get a little choked up we're on the 300th episode well, so it's i get a little weepy time. it's weepy dad time but uh my dad passed away while we were doing the newsletter and you drew something that was really to this day it hangs on my wall which is why i, oh, I well, think of nice. you all the time it was a picture of a, a father with his little boy next to him and it was only their backs and in the mm-hmm. front it was like they had just walked into the arena and you could see the lights and the ring and it really captured the spirit of what my dad meant to me and i i remember clearly when i showed my mom that and she broke down in tears and it was just a really special thing. And I don't think you had ever even seen a photo of my dad, yet your drawing somehow, from behind, of course, somehow captured him. But that is something that has been with me for, shit, 33 years at this point and mm-hmm. uh, will well, continue to that. be with me for the rest of my life. So thank you, John. 
Uh, you're certainly welcome. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, um, you know, I mean, that's the kind of the way it was with me. I mean, my father didn't take me. My father didn't take me to the matches, but my older brother did, you know, and uh, he worked at the Coliseum. And he took me in there and he said, OK, there's two things you got to know about wrestling before you go in here. And I said, OK. He was about nine years older than me. And I said, OK, what's that? And he goes, first off. Wrestling's fake, but Brute Bernard's crazy. So if Brute Bernard goes for it, you, run because he's nuts. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, I got that right. And then he said, oh, and uh, half the half the most entertaining stuff in this uh, on wrestling, half's in the ring and half's out of the ring. You're going to see people at this show that look like they fell off turnip trucks and came over in a hayride. I mean, you're going to see the weirdest people in the world. So just get ready and just kind of watch. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And so he left me alone. And I was sitting there watching this thing, and little did I know, I was going to be one of, within 10 years, I was going to be one of the nuts that would be sitting on the front row that was stirring up the crowd and being part of the show. So, you know, I, 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 can, I could relate. I mean, uh, you know, believe it or not, my father actually and my uncle Weldon actually did professional wrestling at one time at fairs up in Pennsylvania. And one guy would wear a mask and be the bad guy, and then they'd go out a little bit later and they'd switch masks so one guy could be a good guy. Uh, there's no record of it or anything, but they actually did that for a while, which is kind of cool to find that out later from Uncle. So, so yeah, listen, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, you know, as we begin to wrap up, uh, John, I do want to ask you to just tell one more story. Uh, and that is because last week our, our match of the week was a uh, match from Oklahoma City with uh, Dennis and Bobby uh, with Jimmy at ringside taking on Ricky and Robert. And uh, I know rock and roll versus midnight was such a part of uh, – Greensboro and all the fun that you guys had. But I know that, you know, even though now, uh, you know, maybe your relationship with Ricky and Robert's a little bit better. It is I know with there Ricky. Were, what's that? But it is with Ricky. But Robert Robert's, still hates Robert still hates me. <laughs> I mean, this is a true story. I went I went to I go to this thing at WrestleCade in Winston Salem with the Benton Convention Center. And I'm walk I, they give me a free table to sell my you know, my wrestling book. And front row section D, and and suddenly Ricky Morton grabs me. He goes, "Come up here, come over here, Greensboro." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, you know what do you want?" And, and he goes, "He goes, hey Robert, you you remember Greensboro?" And, and Robert Gibson looks at me and he goes, "Oh yeah, I remember that guy. He's the biggest asshole I ever met in my life. This guy, he really sucks." He said, and, he, and I go, I look at him, I go, well, "Rock and roll, brother." And then I and I said, well, "What do you want, Ricky?" And he goes, "I said, man, he still hates me." And he goes, "He's just working." I said, "No, dude, he really hates my guts, man. He still takes this shit personal. He's like Dusty Rhodes." So he he said, would you do me a favor and talk to my son? And I went, what? He goes, what I do is at night is we watch a, a pay-per-view or a big match. And I sit there with my son who's training to be a wrestler, and he's now in professional wrestling. And he said, we sit there and we go over the main events that I'm in, and I go step by step, how we set it up, storytelling, you know, spot moves, everything. I said, well, that's kind of like being having a master's class, man. That's awesome. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. Yeah, thanks. So I said, uh, so I, he said, well, you know, my son and I watch these matches. And suddenly my son goes, and his son's about 18, right? And his son goes, what the hell's those guys in the front row for? What the hell's that shit? And he goes, oh, man, those guys were heel fans. They stirred the shit up. Those guys were incredible. We hated their guts, but now everything's cool. So he said, would you talk to my son? And I'm going, are, are you sure? And he goes, look. 
he, they love to hear this. He loves this stuff. He wants to hear it. I said, you want me to tell him the truth about what went on between us and you know, rock and roll in the front row? Yeah, yeah, he'll eat it up. He'll, Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. And I walked away. I went, I can't believe it. Ricky Morton just told me to, that I could tell I could tell his kid that he was an asshole. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So we go over and sit down. His son comes over, and I start telling him the stories, you know, all the famous ones about stuff that happened. And his son is just laughing his ass off. And uh, the, there's a bunch of guys there from AEW, uh, and, and they're, you know, the, the ass boys are there, and they're kind of listening. I said, if you want to jump in, man, jump in. I'm telling the shit. This is, this is good shit. And uh, anyway, so I tell them, I tell them the stories, and I, I give them a copy of my book. And I said, look, uh, do me a favor. Don't show this book to your dad right away, okay? Because right now, your dad and I are in really good terms, you know? And I gave a copy to Magnum, and Magnum was cool. And then when he read it, he he blew me off. He told me, I read the book. Move along. I don't want to talk to you. Okay, thanks, Magnum. Appreciate it. Um, I just said he was in no town. Anyway. uh, (laughs) I can't imagine why he'd be upset. But, you know, it's unbelievable. I'm, I'm walking after his son leaves, and he, you know, his son, I'm, I'm walking over to go, go, go. I was going to check something out, and I'm walking by, and Sabrina Moore comes over and hugs me and says he loves me. Thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I couldn't. You talk about full circle, you know, you know, full circle. That's incredible to sit there and think all those years we gave him so much shit, and then he's asking me to talk to his son. That's really kind of wonderful in a way, but, but I didn't hold back. I told him the damn truth, you know. Yeah. The night well, listen. Night yeah. Go ahead. Now I was going to say, uh, John, we just well, uh, want to say thank you so much. What? Well, it's just the, the that's the famous uh, Bruce Mitchell story where. Uh, oh, well, go ahead and tell him that. He he never gone to the front row before, and we got him some front row. We we got him in front row seats. He was driving down from Beckley, West Virginia, you know, and and we got him a front row seat. And we're sitting on the front row, of course, and he and Bruce just looks at me and he goes, "Hey, man." Uh, let me ask you something. Can they hear you? Now, on the front row, you you could probably throw a, you know, you could spit and hit them. You're right on top of them, right? And uh, I said, well, I got an idea. Why don't you give it a shot and see? You know, so I kind of set him up. <clears throat> so out comes, of all people, out comes Ricky and Robert, who have, you know, hated us forever. And Ricky, Ricky and Robert run out. And Bruce is standing there, and he yells at him, hey, hey, Morton, you suck. That's all he said. And Ricky Morton just explodes, runs across the ring, and starts screaming at him. And he goes, and I quote, Hey, Four Eyes, I've turned down more pussy in one night than you've gotten in your whole life, you faggot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and, we're, and Bruce is like, what the hell? I mean, he's just like totally just crushed him. And so I'm sitting there, and I went, hey, Morton, I can't let that go. I need some clarification. Are we talking legal pussy here? Are we talking about any underage girls and training bras and T-shirts and any farm animals you might have banged on the way over here? And he went <laughs> ballistic. He was so hot. He let Robert start the match, and he sat in the corner and just screamed at me. Just screamed at me. I couldn't. It was. Uh, it was. It was. I said. So I looked at Bruce and I said, "Guess what? They can hear you. You know. Trust me, they can hear you." <laughs> Dusty Rhodes grabbed his crotch more than any man alive at me. He hated my gut. It was incredible, but that was good because I hated his guts too. There you go. Anyway, I know you guys got to go. No, I really hitch, appreciate. Man. We... I appreciate you guys calling uh, and checking up. And uh, congratulations again on the on the big anniversary. And uh, All right, don't brother. be strangers. Okay. Thank you. Okay. We'll talk to you Take soon. Take it easy. Take care. Okay. Bye.
Barry, yet more Florida Man or Not stories, because we are nothing if not. One of the last times I'll ever say it, Jeff, we're givers. Well, maybe we'll use the Florida Man stuff on the Patreon. I don't All know. All right. That's a good the idea. The headline reads, restaurant to pay $140,000 in damages after using a fake priest to spy on employees. Ah, I hate when that happens, Barry. Owners of a restaurant will have to pay $140,000 in back wages and damages after federal investigators found they had hired a priest in an attempt to get employees to admit, quote, workplace sins, unquote, an act of retaliation that officials deemed shameless. Uh, let's see. Shea Garibaldi Incorporated, the owner of three Taqueria Garibaldi locations, reportedly hired a person identified. He just identified as a priestberry. Oh, he's not, not a real priest. Yeah. He just, to, okay. To quote, get the sins out, unquote, of employees during work hours. <clears throat> the U.S. Department of Labor said labor officials began looking at the restaurant chain in November of 2021 for wage theft when they found out a fake priest had been meeting with employees to obtain confessions of the wrong, of their wrongdoing against their employer. The alleged priest asked employees a variety of questions, including if they had stolen from their employer, been late to work, or if they had had any bad intentions towards management. Harry Rose, Florida, Florida priest or not? Well, he identifies as a priest. Yeah. Fake sure. Florida. Fake, yeah, fake priest. I'm going to say this was not Florida. California, Barry. Woo! Got that one right. There you so, go. Uh, uh, Lou, could you join us here? Lou, are you famous? Are you familiar with the uh, chain Taqueria Garibaldi in California? I am not, though. I am familiar with this particular escapade. Uh, please, I like that. Share. I like what you're saying too, Lou. Are you, it's not like California is a big state or anything either. You're like, Lou, are you familiar with this taco place? Well, where, it where? said it was a chain. That's why I asked. All right, all right. What, right, what city? Right. Did it say the what last city episode this took place? you're putting the boots to me here. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time. I put up with this for 299 episodes. Now I take revenge. Does there it say you go. Send city? them home happy. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm trying to, it was somewhere in Northern California, I think. Oh, uh, really? Oh. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it, it came up in the local news because this, uh, Cafe Padre caper also kind of dovetailed with wage theft accusations. I think oh. they got a, uh, I want to say the, the chain got fined, uh, somewhere around $140,000 for uh, improper wage theft from the employees. You know, Barry, when we do our next show uh, here on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, uh, we're going to be calling it the Kayfabe Padres. Uh, you know, so uh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, we'll talk a little religion, a little life. Next story, Barry Rose. Are you ready? No. College coach goes full Kenny Powers after being caught having an affair with a student athlete. <clears throat> All right. The story continues. Steve Lemke's time as an assistant bowling coach. Not, not only is there a bowling coach, but there's an assistant <laughs> bowling coach has come to an end after an affair. Lemke's wife, Amber, who is the program's head coach, filed oh. for divorce and he resigned from the program back in April after it was discovered he'd been having an affair with a member of the team. Steve and Amber helped guide the, the team to a pair of national bowling titles. The former coach 
made it clear that the relationship was consensual, but, quote, amplified to the magnitude that it is now that it is now because of the national championship caliber that we've developed. I think it's more of an ethic thing when it comes to the colleges as far as a coach teacher being with a student athlete, according to the same report. Uh, I know it was kind of no-no, but there's not a rule that says that it can't happen. There's not a law saying I'm going to jail for doing something like this. There's nothing in stone. I guess it's just an ethics code, like we frown upon it, but there's no rule. There's no law broken. Barry Rose, this guy just doubled down on cheating on his old lady. So, Barry Rose, did this occur in Florida or not? He did double down, too, and you got to admit, this guy, he's got the Rolodex of excuses. He's going through, well, there's nothing in the rule book, and yada, yada, yada. He didn't break a law. Well, exactly. He didn't break the law, but it's, I'll tell you what, the law is very, and I'm going to, I'm going to present a scenario to, uh, scenario to you. So years ago, uh, shit, server say, manager. No, neither uh, a manager, but no, I think I was open table at this point. One of Zachary's teachers, I'll say 10th or 11th grade, and she was having an affair with one of her students and she wound up doing jail time for it. Big scandal in the town where we lived, obviously, in the high school. The interesting thing was the student was over 18 years old when all of that occurred, but I guess it's written into their contracts that it is an ethics violation and they can be prosecuted. So I'm, I, I would assume in college it doesn't exist because they are older. They could be in their 20s. What I find interesting is this guy is cheating on his on his wife, who is the coach. He's the assistant with one of the other bowlers. And somehow the wife didn't have any sort of suspicion, or maybe she did. But I'd like to see the bowlers. I've never really seen super attractive female bowlers. And quite frankly, if they exist, How I'd dare you them. disparage the feminine bowlers out there? Wow, we've just lost all our listeners of the female nature that are into bowling. I'm shocked and outraged. <laughs> okay, so how many, how many, let's, I, I have my hand out. How many female bowlers have, and look, I'm not saying that they don't exist. I just, I think of bowling. Oh, think, you're trying to double back now. I got oh, you. Oh, no, no, no. I'm actually going to dig even a deeper hole. Uh, if you got to give me a chance, but I've, I don't recall ever truly ever seeing attractive female bowlers. However, I'm sure that they exist. But anytime I've watched bowling at 3 a.m. on ESPN 46 or whatever the fuck channel it is, they don't look, they look to be uh, Zoftig, I believe was the word you used recently uh, as we were having a conversation. So you're trying to tell me 2 a.m. you're watching bowling on the uh, ESPN Ocho and you've never seen a bowler that you've said to yourself, oh, yeah. I get it. No, never. I don't think that. I've ever anyway, said that. Getting back to the story, is this Florida man or not? The first one was California. We're moving all over the place. So we would have to wind up. I'm going to say, I'm going to say this is not Florida. This, uh, the university this took place at was Stephen F. Austin University, which I believe is in Tejas. Tejas! Lou saying that the uh, the lady in question obviously was a perfect 300. Little bowling related humor oh. there from Sweet Lou. Thank you, my man. <clears throat> Next story coming up, Barry. Let me see what we get uh, here. <clears throat> the headline reads: Upstate mom arrested for letting 10 year old son get a tattoo. Oh. According to cops, a uh, woman was arrested for letting her 10 year old son get a permanent tattoo. Crystal Thomas, 33, alleged that. 
uh, allegedly let the youngster get his name in big block letters. And it, this is the best part of the story, Barry. And a procedure done at a quote transient hotel. Oh, <laughs> that's where you okay. want to take your kid, you know? Yeah, professional, professional exactly. tattooer. Yeah. Uh, where uh, she and her two children were staying, according to reports, she was slapped with a charge of endangering the welfare of a child for allowing her son to get a quote large permanent ink tattoo on his body, according to local police. In addition to the charges for Thomas, cops are now on the hunt for the amateur artist who inked up the kid. So before we uh, decide if this is a Florida woman or not, Barry Rose, let me just ask you, when it comes to young Zachary or young Zoe, was there ever a point if they came to you and said, hey, dad, I'd like to get a tat. By the way, I'm sure they would be followed with mom said no. At what, at what age would you have permitted Zach or Zoe to get a tat? Sure, and this this is a legitimate conversation that occurred with Zoe, who at about 15 years old said, I want to get a tattoo. And we both said, uh, no. And when you're 18 years old, if you, it is your body. If you choose to get a tattoo, I will support you in that decision. But at 15, you're way too young. And I said, you know, you're, you, everything will change in your life. What's important to you today may not be important to you as you grow older. Everything a parent would say to a child – she very much understood that the day she turned 18, she went and got a tattoo. Just to give you an idea, she since has gotten three tattoos. They're all small. We actually share the one. We don't share it. We actually <laughs> we share a tattoo. We actually have matching tattoos, which you've seen. We both have a heart on our wrist. She has uh, one on her wrist, one on the front of her hand, and then one on the inside of her finger which is a flower. I, I've i always felt, this is another thing, this will be a controversial statement for some, but when I see babies that are out there, and I'm talking babies that might be a year old, maybe a little younger, and their ears are already pierced, I got to tell you, that rubs me the wrong way, Jeff. And I, I, I do think there is a reason that you have to be 18 to get a tattoo. It's a permanent decision. Of course, earring holes can close up, but when you're, when you're putting something like that on a baby, let's be honest, earrings are vanity, right? You're not getting it to, uh, to correct something. You're not getting it because it's going to make you sleep better or will bring some health to your life or anything like that. It's pure vanity. And I think that parents that get their, their small babies when they get their ears uh, pierced, I, I've always found that wrong. Uh, so yeah. So uh, what did Zoe's mom have to say when she ultimately did get a tat at 18? She was okay with her getting a tat at 18. She was not as okay with the second tattoo and the third tattoo, which was the one that Zoe and I shared. We kept that under wraps for about three months. <laughs> <laughs> so I will tell you that uh, – <clears throat> and we're going to eventually get back to whether or not this is a Florida uh, woman right. or not. I was anti-tat for the longest time. Uh, I just, I used to jokingly say that if you're grading a woman uh, on a scale of one to 10, if she had a tat, the highest she was going to get in my book was a nine. Uh, I went out with someone, uh, I'm trying to think, when did I date her? It was between, I think it was between, uh, wives one and two. I went out with a, a young lady. It was very nice, a very nice woman. She had the uh, tattoo of the rose, uh, above the, the upper boob area. 
Oh. And uh, I'll never forget she came out. Uh, I You're getting some it. that night, Jeff. I got to tell you, a woman's well, got a tattoo of a rose in the upper boob area. You know you're getting some that well, night. Well, right? uh, you know, I, I may have uh, – I can uh, neither admit or deny uh, since the story involves uh, her coming uh, with me to go visit my parents over Thanksgiving. Oh. And I remember that uh, she came out for breakfast uh, one morning, and she had a V-neck sweater on, which showed the the, the tattoo. And I was – Completely mortified that uh, my parents now knew that I was dating someone that had a tattoo. I will say this was like 35 years ago. So uh, I've, uh, I'd like to think that I've evolved a certain amount. But <clears throat> the other thing I was going to say is that, uh, you know, my daughter is uh, has got quite the tattoo uh, collection going on. Sure. She's got a, like a whole sleeve on her arm now. The funny thing is, is when she first started getting a tattoo uh, or getting tattoos, her mom hid the fact that she had gotten tattoos from me because she knew that I was not a fan. Uh, and so uh, what happened was at some point, I don't know where we were going. I think we were going to like, I don't know, Six Flags or something like that, where there was going to be, you know, they got the log flume or the water ride or whatever. So uh, Kelly was going to be wearing something that, you know, where she could get some sun and stuff like that. So Kim comes to me and she says, well, there's something I need to talk to you about. And I said, what's that? She goes, well, you know, uh, and she's kind of hemming and hawing. I'm going, uh oh, here we go. Uh, bad news is forthcoming. And she goes, well, uh, you know, we're going uh, to Six Flags and, uh, you know, Kelly's going to be wearing a shirt where you're going to see that she's gotten a tattoo. And I'm like, oh, and I guess in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I was probably thinking something way worse. Sure. Was about to be, you know, forced, you know, thrust upon me. So I went, oh, okay. Well, uh, whatever. Okay. So then we go. And I saw that she had the tattoo or something like that. And I was like, okay, I can live with that. But then like a couple months later, we were going to do something again as a family and maybe we're going to another park or something. And Kelly was wearing a, was wearing something where I saw the uh, smaller part of her back. Okay. And so on the smaller part of her back, as I, you know, I'm sure after 300 episodes, people have learned, uh, I adopted Kelly. When she was, oh God, now I got to think about that. Uh, I want to say she was like about 10 or 11 years old when I adopted her. But, um, so, um, I'm not her natural father, I guess is what I was trying to say. And so what she had done was she got a tattoo in remembrance of her, of her father, whose name is also Jeff. And, uh, so anyway, so when I saw that tattoo, the tattoo was something, you know, it was like a script. It was like, you know, although I don't remember you, I, you're always in my heart. It's like this big script. And I, when I got home, I told Kim, I go, what the hell? Did she write a book on her back? Well, you know, uh, I was expecting, you know, like, you know, uh, a hummingbird or something. I don't know, but, uh, you know, so she had this whole script on her back. So, you know, it's never bothered me. That's, you know, like you said, she's an adult. That's her deal. I will tell you, I've never ever thought about getting a tattoo. In my whole life, until this past September, Barry. Uh, sure. And you know what I'm what I'm talking uh, about. I do, 100. percent And let me say, I am in agreement with you because I know that when that time comes for me, 100. percent I have already committed to getting it. I will tell you also, the lovely Zoe has found what is considered the number one tattoo artist who does pets in the entire country and she found it for me so i would be more than happy to share that information with you well it's really interesting because my daughter the person that does her tats is in orlando 
my daughter will drive down to Orlando strictly for the purpose of updating her tattoo or getting a new one. She, uh, none of that local shit, <laughs> you know, right. She, sure. she wants to go where the primo artist is. But, uh, what I'm referring to, if you haven't figured out was I was going to get a tattoo of my boy Gunny, you know, probably not his face because a lot of times they get messed up, but his name, you know, like on my arm. And I was thinking about that until, and this is something I had not thought about. There are people out there that will tell you that if you uh, have been a, a cancer patient and survived cancer, as I have, and gotten chemo or something like that, sometimes afterwards, not always, but sometimes it can lead to an issue if you uh, are thinking about going to get a tattoo. So I need to check with my oncologist before I uh, go through with that and get gunny. And, of course, you know, just being the way it is, I'm sure if I get Gunny's name on my arm, I'm sure I'm also going to get the names of my other dogs that I've had over the course of my life. On that note, Barry Rose, getting back to the story, is this a Florida man story or Florida woman story or not? This is not a Florida woman story. This is not Florida. This is New York State, Barry. Wow. So, Look at me. What is that? I got all three right? Three for three. It, uh, apparently, it says the uh, the person's name is uh, Benji Fido, son Antonio. <laughs> Never knew that he got Antonio a tattoo. So, sure. uh, you know, sweet little uh, shout out to our boy, uh, Benji and uh, Antonio. Next story, Barry Rose. <clears throat> the headline reads, cops, boy, age nine, dimed out mother for drunk driving. I hate when that happens, Barry. Come the story this. goes, <clears throat> excuse me, a drunk driving suspect who told cops she had not consumed alcohol, was contradicted by her own nine-year-old son, who declared from the car's back seat, quote, Mom, you can't lie to the police. You did drink. According to investigators, <laughs> Christine awesome. Wiley, 49-year-old teacher, of course, narrowly avoided striking a police car as she drove on a street around 2 a.m. Uh, 2 a.m. Oh, nothing good ever happens at 2 a.m., Barry. The cop car, with its light fl lights flashing, had pulled over to handle an unrelated incident. When deputies approached the 2018 Ford, they spotted her son, who was not wearing a seatbelt, in the backseat, curled up and crying. As detailed in the arrest affidavit, a cop noted that the wobbly Wiley's eyes were, quote, watery and red in color. There was a strong odor of an alcoholic beverage emitting off of her person and breath. Good Lord, Barry, this is every probable cause affidavit over 33 years of the courthouse that I read for a DUI arrest. Uh, when asked if she had been drinking, Wiley said no. That is when cops said Wiley's son replied to his mother, mother's answer by saying, Mom, you can't lie to the police. You did drink. The boy subsequently told cops that his mother had been drinking at a party and that he had asked her to slow down while they were driving back to their residence. The child said he was very scared while Kristen operated the vehicle, a cop reported. So Barry Rose, Florida woman or not? Kid diamond out the mom for, for drinking and driving. Yeah, I'm going to say this one is Florida. Vero sure. Beach. Woo! You are batting a thousand, my man. This is, I believe, the last story. Man hides on roof to evade arrest from police caught wearing a wanted Cheech and Chong shirt. Report goes, a man attempted to evade arrest by hiding on the roof of a Domino's pizza. Well, those are good hiding places. Only to be arrested on drug charges for wearing a wanted Cheech or Chong shirt. Yeah, did you like your Cheech and Chong movies, Barry? I did like my Cheech and Chong movies, yeah. I liked the first one, Up in Smoke. That was really good. Stacey Keach uh, playing the That's cop. right, yeah. yeah. 
So uh, anyway, didn't he, didn't he turn into a lizard at one point? Remember yes, that? I think because uh, he was. A, remember when he was they were at, he was at the urinal with uh, Tommy Chong and he asked him a question. I think it was Tommy Chong and he turned and he started pissing all over Stacy Keach. That was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so uh, the uh, police department said on Monday at 1130 uh, p.m. Officers attempted to pull a car over for going 20 miles over the speed limit on Walton Road. However, the driver refused to stop and fled from police, crashing into a concrete pole. Police say the driver got out of the car and proceeded to flee from officers on foot. The man was wearing a wanted Cheech and Chong T-shirt and left behind a stash of 285 pills, including fentanyl, marijuana, plastic baggies, and the old digital scale. I'm sure he was just a, a mild consumer of the product, Barry. Oh, but yeah. Florida man or not. This one is not Florida. Port St. Lucie. Oh! Motherfucker, you did not bat a thousand here so on episode 300. Barry, we want to put a wrap on our Florida man or not segments uh, here on this final grand finale, if you will. The go home, the Kenny Loggins, this is it edition. So I've got two final stories for you, Barry. First, a bullshit or not story provided to you. So, Barry, I'm going to give you two stories. You tell me which one is bullshit, which one is true. The first story, the headline, uh, easy for me to say, nurse extracts cockroach from man's ear. A man complaining of ear itching and random bouts of sneezing found a horrifying cause. A cockroach had crawled up there, and it was living off his earwax. Story number two, Dr. Yank's huge leech out of patient's nostril. A man suffering from a 10-day-long nosebleed wasn't thrilled to learn the reason a massive leech had burrowed into his nasal passages. Barry Rose, which story is bullshit? Which story is real? Well, I, I think in theory, both stories are real at some point because... Remember back when we were kids? You know, it seemed like two things were going to be a much bigger issue. Number one, quicksand. You don't run into a lot of quicksand now. I'm going to knock on wood there. But you yeah, remember like yeah, your Tarzan movies? Quicksand was always a big thing. And also, leeches were a big issue. Uh, you know, anyway, uh, your thoughts on these stories. Which one's bullshit? Which one's real? Yeah, the quicksand thing was kind of weird, too, because it wasn't just Tarzan. It was Gilligan's Island did it and a bunch of other shows. And yet I've never encountered quicksand, though I feel like I'm prepared for quicksand. Uh, well, maybe when you move to the, you know, the Gulf of Mexico down there on the beach, uh, yeah, you'll run something. Something will happen here. So I would think both these stories are legit. The question is, which one are you referring to? I, I would see if you go swimming leeches. I got to tell you, too, every time I see the leeches and they attach to someone's test, Testicles. That just freaks the, me the fuck out every time there's a movie or a TV show, uh, or one of those you know like you go down to a Brazil oh. and you're you know and you and those things crawl under your like urethra those like oh. uh, I don't even want to think oh about that. my god and and then shit crawling <laughs> in your in your ears you hear all the time they're always extracting like spiders like you hear the spiders lay eggs and the fuck oh my god I'm gonna go with the leeches. Uh, I'll go with that story. And so with the second part of this uh, little carousel of fun, would that be, is this Florida or not? No, 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 no. Uh, no neither okay. story actually is Florida, but. Gotcha. So it's just bullshit. So I'm gonna, yeah. As reported in the mirror, a UK on June 13th, 2018, the real story, the nose leech. You are correct. Lord Barron's way to go. As we start off, where was this at? What, uh, what? Didn't say. 
Oh, okay. So, uh, let's see here. The last Florida man or not story. <clears throat> Headline reads, Barry. Student breaks into home in the bridges found in teacher's bed. Walks past a security guard, home uh, of his uh, fitness instructor, waits for her under the covers. Gee, this is not just a wee bit creepy, huh, Barry? Oh. The story continues. A fitness instructor was shocked to find an ex-student in her bed Saturday at her home in an upscale community. The uh, police tell the news that Stephen Castillo was found, quote, lying in the teacher's bed under the covers when she arrived home around noon. Apparently, he was hoping for a nooner bear. Sure. Castillo had apparently just arrived at an area airport, took an Uber to the front gate of her community, and walked right in. Solid security there. Uh, it was unclear how he gained access to the woman's home. The woman called the police, which responded with several uh, police officers, and they took the defendant into custody. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. Hmm, it's got all the makings, right? Fitness instructors, stalking, things that you, know, you always associate with the state of Florida, of course. I am going to say, uh, flip the coin on this one because it can go in either direction. I'm going to say this is the state of Florida. Delray Beach, Florida. Wow. Delray. Uh, Harold Strassler, lady right works, around there? Who? Harold. <laughs> yeah, still waiting for Harold Strassler's first dollar. Don't get me started. All right. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, gee, let's see uh, what else we can mention. Cars, uh, hockey. Okay, now we've given Harold Strassler about 10 seconds more than he probably deserves. But I will say that the lady in question worked at Florida Atlantic University, my sort of alma mater. Anyway, this has been the final edition this episode. A Florida man or not, will there be more? All right. So now, boys, it is time for the inevitable go home. <sighs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw it to Sweet Lou for some thoughts. Then my partner, my partner in crime, Barry Rose, will offer his closing thoughts. And uh, and then I will uh, have some few parting words before we go. So. Sweet Lou, scam likely. Please, some thoughts here on our final episode. Thanks, guys. Well, I tell you, breaking kayfabe is, it's a notable thing in my career, uh, because it was the first podcast I got to produce. And I know I, uh, joined in on the fun uh, at least a year into the run. But, uh, you know, Jeff and Barry were always, always good guys to work with and unfailingly courteous and polite and uh, funny as hell. And, of course, this is not goodbye. It is... Uh, you know, we'll see on Patreon, but there have been just, uh, it, I feel fortunate to, to have been the guy, you know, pushing the buttons and getting to talk to the people I, you know, saw and admired on my TV every weekend. Guys like, uh, the late Butch Reed. Uh, Tully Blanchard, Kevin Sullivan, Steve Kern, Stan Hansen, just a, you know, and I don't mean to slight anybody else. These are just the people coming off the top of my head. 
And of course, uh, you get to, you know, know good people and recurring characters. Kevin Kelly, uh, the, the voice of collision for one, uh, solid dude. And it's, I, I got the chance to refine my producing chops from zero to what it is today, which is slightly more than zero. But, uh, I've also been a, a party to the motley crew of people who coalesced in the listening audience around this show. And I, I think that speaks to sort of the, what they call the parasocial qualities of this particular podcast. You guys have big hearts and you look out for each other and it certainly warms my heart. Uh, if there's one regret that I have is that I wasn't able to make that transcontinental trip, uh, to Lutz. I think what you guys had going there was a very special thing. I look forward to seeing, uh, whatever iteration comes next. And I'm going to start saving my pennies after Cauliflower Alley Club. But it, it's been a hell of a ride. And thank you for the privilege. You know, I, I go back to, um, when I was getting married and, and there's a reason I'm bringing that up. And I, I spent about a month, maybe six weeks writing, writing my vows and my ex-wife and myself, we both wrote our own vows. And when the time came to actually recite those vows, I drew a complete blank and I had to wing it. And I realized a very valuable lesson that day is that uh, sometimes when you over prep, it's not always good. So today I had sat down and I had something all written out that I wanted to share. And it was really how important all of this from A to Z has meant to me over the last six years and how it will continue in my life, whether it's, you know, five years or 20 years. I'll look back on the last six years uh, as just something truly incredible. And, you know, first off, I, I really want to thank you, Jeff. Uh, and, and you know that I love you first off and, and we should never be afraid to ever say shit like that. Uh, you know, but you know, you took a chance in a sense on me. And uh, I, I remember you and I having a talk in the beginning and I was very hesitant to do it and to do the podcast. And, I think my hesitancy was really based off of one. I had no experience in doing it. I don't have your voice and, and it, you know, I, I had no idea what was going to happen. I, I didn't know, you know, would I, would this be fun? Would it suck? Would I be good? Would I suck? And, and I think I suck at times. Absolutely. But, uh, you took a chance on me and I remember us having a conversation before that, me saying to you, you know, if this doesn't work out, there's no hard feelings on my side. You know, if I if it turns out that I really suck at this and you want to go in a different direction, please know that our friendship wouldn't be affected. And I, I really meant that, uh, you know, because, again, I had no idea what was going to happen. But, you know, I, I don't want to say I was rough around the edges because that would be past tense. I still think I am rough around the edges. But with it. uh 
you know, you gave me a shot, you know, it, you did and I'll forever be grateful because the importance of what the show and the community that was built around it, what it means to me on a daily basis is huge and it'll continue, uh, to be absolutely huge. And, you know, we didn't have much of a direction when we first started. I, I think we were looking at top five every week. And certainly you can make a lot of jokes. The listeners can make a lot of jokes how for the first month we couldn't even make it to five without going, what number are we on? Just showing how professional we were right from the get-go. But It's a professional know, bod- uh, podcast, let's be honest. Absolutely. We, we always brought the <laughs> semi-professional semi, which is what we all, we were semi something, semi-professional. And I think that was also partly part of the charm of what we were doing is we never took ourselves too seriously. Look, let's be honest. It's we're, we're no different than anyone who listens to us. And, and I think that was part of what the charm of the show was. Uh, I think it's the fact that we were able to connect to so many fucking amazing people. And it was because we didn't put ourselves on this pedestal. We weren't any better than anybody else. And we knew it. We just wanted to share the fun that we were having. And, you know, whether we were discussing music, food, movies, wrestling, whatever it was, I, I felt like it was always something that we were able to communicate to each other, the sincerity of how we felt. And that actually meant a lot to me. You know, the impact of the show, and, and I don't think anyone will truly ever understand it. And I certainly know that I'm not a master of communicating at all. But the fact that we were able to not only touch certain people's lives, but to make a positive difference was something neither of us ever thought about beforehand. And to me, it, it will be the legacy, in my opinion, of what's being left. You know, when people reached out and, uh, you know, when, when people were reaching out and people had attempted suicide and they, you know, and they would say, they would say things like, just listening to you guys brought a real smile to my face. And it, that, that is, that is one of the greatest legacies that anyone could ever hope for. The fact that we were able, just by being ourselves, which really were, you know, a couple idiots, that we were able to bring some amount of joy, uh, to someone's life who needed it, somebody who truly needed it, you know, and I, I remember getting a couple messages and, and, you know, it, 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 it broke my heart to read it. And at the same time, I was so grateful that you had given me this opportunity where we could bring some joy to somebody was absolutely fucking huge to me. This is so much more than a show. It is so much more than a podcast. It is a community that is built. And as Sweet Lou was saying, as he was giving his final goodbyes and as much like I'm doing, the fact that people care about each other, the fact that people, you know, and we we only see what we see, what's posted through social media, but there's so much taking place behind the scenes where group members are helping other group members and, and people are there to support each other and whether it's financially, but more importantly, it's emotional. It's, it's spiritual. And the fact that people are out there on a daily basis, you know, and 
I, I talked to somebody last week and they said, oh, I spoke to so-and-so yesterday. And this was somebody that had, uh, that had dealt with a tragedy. And, and, you know, it, it's just, it's out there and there's no reward. That's the beauty of it. There's no motivation. It's only to help people. It's only to do, I guess, essentially what is the right thing. Uh, uh, there's nothing that I can say to truly bring into light what this has meant to me over the last six years. And, and I didn't share it on air and I didn't do it uh, primarily because it, it's not necessarily always who I am, but in the, the months and year leading up to my divorce, there was a lot of, a lot of angst that went through there. You know, I would joke all the time about living in the basement, but, the reality was it was a reality. I was living in the basement. I was in a very difficult decision in living with my ex and, and it created a lot of angst. And I got to tell you, the show, the people, you, everyone involved really helped pull me through that. And I, I wound up on, in a better place because of that. The message that I want to tell people. The show is so fucking important to so many people. And it wasn't that you and I per se were important. It, it was the show itself. It was the familiarity. It was the fact that in 300 fucking episodes, we never missed one Tuesday and we never recycled content. We always delivered something. And that really meant a lot to people, Jeff. That's something that I would get and it was like, thank you. And it's like, you know, for what? It's thank you for being there for me every Tuesday. And that really meant a lot. And as we wrap up and as we're done with, uh, with the regular show and, and all that, I can tell you people hold on to each other. Hold on tight. Don't be afraid to tell people that you love them. It's so important. And there's nothing that you guys can't find that that can't be found. It's out there, whatever it is. For everybody that listens to our show, that you feel that you're a misfit, that you feel that you're an outcast, that you don't always fit in, it's fucking bullshit. The world may not fit in with you. You fucking people are fucking beautiful and you're unbelievable. And whatever pain you guys are going through, just know you've always got each other. You've always got me and Jeff. None of that will ever change. So with that, I want to thank every single person, every single person that has touched my life over the last six years. Now is your time, people. Go fly. Go be the fucking superstars you all know that you can be. I love you all. You know, Barry and I, uh, used to joke that, uh, our group and, and sometimes the people that came to the fan fest, uh, we would call them our own personal island of misfit toys. Uh, just like, uh, what the hell was that? Was that, uh, Rudolph or, or one of the Christmas specials, uh, back from the day? They had the island of misfit toys. And that's kind of what we always thought, uh, our group was. So, uh, I absolutely echo Barry's thoughts on that. And now, uh, it is time for me to say my farewell. Uh, you know, what I did is, as Barry said, I, I did not write a speech. I gave myself some 
talking points that I wanted to remember. Uh, this journey for me, uh, began with someone being pissed off that they didn't feel they got properly credited for some photos. Uh, and so I, uh, was outcast from a little particular group of gentlemen that had dinners. Uh, somebody in their own little petulant, uh, rage decided I was not going to be invited to the dinners anymore. Uh, and so I was kind of out there, uh, and credit words do, uh, one of the people I want to credit and thank is Brian Last, who asked me to appear on the, uh, the 605 podcast. Remember when they had those, Barry? Uh, anyway, uh, and I made an appearance there and someone on Twitter, and I, <laughs> I can never remember the person's name, said, Hey, would you uh, ever do a podcast? I really enjoyed, uh, your, uh, your, uh, Time on the uh, 605. I thought it was very interesting and I'm very appreciative of that person for suggesting it. And because, uh, when he said that, Brian in the comments said, you know, that I think that'd be a really good idea. So Brian, <coughs> excuse me, uh, my voice is shot. It's not that I'm that emotional, at least. Um, Brian asked me, would you be interested in doing something like that? Because I'm interested in having more shows on the, uh, Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Uh, Lou, does that mean I now have credit for saying that here at the end? Um, Check. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so that started breaking kayfabe originally with Bowdrin. And, uh, then I had, uh, Barry, uh, John McAdam, John Hitchcock uh, join us. And then, uh, as Barry said earlier, he joined, uh, full time on episode four. And, uh, it's been a, uh, kind of a, a roller coaster since then. We both have had our share of life's ups and downs, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, cancer, divorce, children going off to college, children moving away, uh, and be- beginning their own lives. Uh, you know, as John Lennon famously once said, and I've quoted this often, life is what's, is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Uh, I will say it is my firm belief that Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry is the best podcast on the Arcadian network. Uh, I didn't stutter. I mean, the entire Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, all the shows, every single one. This one is the best one of any of them. I stand by that. I say it very proudly and I believe it. Uh, over the years, as Barry very eloquently was discussing all the people that we've, uh, you know, come to know, I want to mention that unfortunately, We've had some friends, Barry, that we've lost along the way also. Uh, you know, I think of our friend Joe Christie, uh, who we lost along the way. And we've had some people, honestly, that, uh, for whatever reason, we, we don't see them as part of our Facebook group. Uh, we don't inter- have interaction with them anymore. I don't know if it's something we did or said. Uh, if that's the case, uh, you know, uh, we, we miss your appearance. Uh, I feel like here on the last show, Barry, we should at least make one final mention uh, of toenail fungus, uh, who we do not miss. But, uh, you know, every uh, every good baby face needs a heel. Uh, and that's uh, that's what he was. Uh, one of the things that always um, amazed me is the fact that uh, we have people, Barry, in Australia, like our friend Robert Goodian uh, in Japan, uh, Ashley Marie Kamek. Uh, we have people in, uh, in Germany and England, uh, 
people all over the world listen to this fucking stupid podcast. You know, it's, it's just, it, it amazes me, you know, when uh, Brian would send me the, uh, the information on what our listenership was like, you know, and, oh, you know, we, we've got, uh, you know, 50 listeners in Indonesia or something like that. And I'm like, we got people in fucking Indonesia listening to us or, or Australia or Germany or wherever, you know, uh, and we sometimes would say, oh, shout out to our listeners in, uh, you know, uh, in the Ukraine. I don't know, but, uh, that's always kind of, uh, amazing to me. You know, uh, Lou was talking, uh, when he was speaking about, the different paths that we go on. And, and I like to think that in the highway of life, breaking cave with fade with Bowdrin and Barry uh, has not reached an end. It's just gotten off on an exit and we're going on a different exit now uh, with our Patreon uh, coverage. I will say, uh, and I've said it before that, you know, when, uh, when it comes to a really big item that happens and, you know, the, the thing that Barry and I always use, is we always say like, you know, when Vince McMahon dies, uh, that'll be a, that'll be a whole podcast just talking about Vince and his death. So, you know, that won't be a Patreon episode. So if you ever look out there and, uh, <clears throat> I hope you'll keep subscribed to this podcast and you see, Hey, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, Barry and, and Bowdrin have a new episode. If it's something like the death of Vince McMahon or something like that, a, a humongous story. Yeah, guess what? We'll, we'll still be out there and we won't make you pay the Patreon, uh, $5 cover charge for that. Uh, you know, so, uh, there's that. I do want to mention, uh, some names uh, that I want to say a special thank you to. Uh, I mentioned Brian last. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. I want to thank you, uh, our friend, uh, John Hitchcock, uh, uh, our friend John McAdam. Uh, we never missed an opportunity to break John's balls, but John and I have been friends for, Good Lord, Barry, th- over 35 years, and uh, he's always been a, a good friend. I want to say a special thanks. You know, I thought about people that we've had multiple times as a as guests on the show uh, here on this episode, our friend Kevin Kelly. And the fact that <clears throat> Kevin Kelly, whether it was WWE announcer Kevin Kelly, New Japan World announcer Kevin Kelly, or now AEW Collision announcer Kevin Kelly is a fan of this show, uh, just always has kind of amazed me, you know. Uh, our friend Bob Roop, who's been on multiple times. Uh, our friend Ron Fuller, who made multiple appearances on the show. Steve Kern, who made multiple appearances on the show. I want to thank each and every, uh, one of those individuals. Hold on, my voice is shot, Barry. Swig a Mountain Dew for the, uh, working man. <clears throat> now, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, I want to say a special thanks to not my partner on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, but my partner in life, Kim Bowdrin, uh, who has always been there to help. Uh, she's always, whether it's technical assistance when my friggin' Skype wasn't working, uh, whether it's, uh, there to, uh, to share, you know, uh, her thoughts on something we've discussed or to just be an ear listening to me. Bitch about things that, uh, you know, th- that I bitched about. Thank you very much, Kim. I, I always will appreciate you. And thank you for being my partner. Maybe this is the last time I'll say this, Barry. In this thing we call life. I want to thank, uh, I want to thank my grandmother. Corrine, Corrine Button. Corrine died in, um, I think it was 1988. Well, Corrine 
was the first person to take me to wrestling when I was a kid. And uh, she instilled in me the love for professional wrestling. And, you know, I, that's a debt I could never, ever repay to her. I want to thank uh, our brother, Sweet Lou, for always being there uh, on the production duties when Barry and I, hey, Lou, uh, we need to go on uh, on Wednesday uh, at 2.30. At can, can you uh, work with us? And Lou's always been there. And I've always been very appreciative of that, as I'm sure Barry has been. Uh, you know, I said before that I don't know that my brother, I haven't talked much about him, on this show, it doesn't mean I, I don't care about him or don't love him. I do. My brother, I don't think is, has really ever listened to an episode of this show as far as I know. But the one brother that I do have that has been a part of this show is my brother Barry, Lord Barrents, as I call him. And he's always been there. And, you know, our conversations that we had that started this show and were the genesis of this show will continue, not just on Patreon, but I'm sure uh, we will call each other probably tomorrow or the next day and say, oh, my God, did you hear about this? Or, oh, what would you think of AEW this week? Or, uh, you know, this or that, because that's what uh, that's what we do. And. I want to say that Barry and Lou and I one last time, gentlemen, will you join me? Let us raise an adult beverage to all those listeners, all those brother shippers, all those misfit toys that Barry talked about. We raise an adult beverage to you, our listeners. Thank you for giving us your time and your consideration. And now I have one last thing that I want to do. I've always heard that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. So what I'd like to do is something that I wanted to do in September. I want to one last time say goodnight to my boy Gunny. I miss you so much, buddy. And I love you forever. For Lou and Barry, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Lou, take us home. <laughs>